Hey there, true listeners. This is Kyle from the Longbox Cast, and you're listening to another great Four Ride Radio podcast. For more great shows, check out fourrideradio.com. And while you're at it, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash longboxcast. Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in three, two, one. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the 4i Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode 71 and is being recorded on September 29th, 2017. Today's topic, Spectral Scans, Star Trek Discovery Episodes 1 and 2. This is a spoiler-filled episode. You have been warned. I'm Aaron. I'm Eric. And I'm also Eric. This episode is sponsored by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off your order. Hey guys, how's everyone doing tonight? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Uh, not too shabby. Excited to have a uh, new Star Trek to talk about. Oh Yes. yes. It's been it's, a long time, <laughs> for me at least, <laughs> on the show. But yeah, I'm ready and able and willing and excited to talk about Star Trek Discovery. It's here. It's finally here. It is. Oh, man. Uh, how, how many times have you guys watched the uh, the two episodes that have been thus far released so far in the, uh, what are we at, six days or five days from release? Uh, four times. All right. You're ahead of me by one. I've only watched them three times. <laughs> I've watched it twice. All right, so we've got a more bars and more places situation going on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I try to watch it more, but the uh, CBS All Access app over cel- cellular is terrible. It really, really is. Uh, you know what? Not for me. I might be in a good cellular area, but uh, I watched it again on lun- on one of my lunch breaks this week, and that was over cellular, and it was fine for me. Oh. Uh. The only, the only issue I had with CBS All Access was during the live stream yeah. of the broadcast. And it cut out for me like 15 minutes before the ending of the first episode. And I was like, oh man, this sucks. So I got off of the live stream. I restarted my Xbox. When it came back... I saw that on the actual Discovery page, the first two episodes were up. So I uploaded the stream, or not not the live stream version, but the regular episode that was there. And it was even better quality than the live stream. It was all HD and perfect. And I fast-forwarded to the point that we left off on the live, and it worked out beautifully. I didn't even try to do the, the live stream. I waited until it was available on the page so I could do just the regular stream. Um, well, see, I didn't know how they were going to do that first right. episode. Like, if they were going to wait until after the live broadcast to put both of them on. So I, I had no idea. But yeah. and, I, and I have no issues with the CBS All Access app on my Android tablet. I have no issues watching it in a browser, in Chrome is what I use, and uh, I have no issues there. And the app on my Roku TV is is actually quite nice. It actually works mm. very well. It's just the Android app for phones 
that I have issue with, and it's not just the the streaming quality over cellular. Like that's a big issue because it keeps pausing and stopping. And I know a lot of that is my own service because I have AT and T and I have the unlimited plan, quote unquote. But I am, you know, once I go over a certain amount of gigabytes per month, I start getting throttled if the network's having heavy traffic, which basically mm. they claim is all the time. So basically, I know pretty much the instant we've we've reached the throttling because everything I try to do online starts slowing down. The thing is, all of my other streaming apps seem to compensate for this quite well. Netflix works fine. Hulu works fine. My HBO app works fine. My Stars app works fine. Um, all of my music apps work fine. You know, all of the other ones seem to, to compensate, but the CBS All Access does not. But it's also just a very clunky app on the phone. No landscape support which is infuriating when you're watching something and then want to change to watching something else, having to, you know, when I've got my phone on a stand oh, yeah. in front of me and I have to constantly reorient it to do things. I'm like, why, why a video app where you're going to be watching it in landscape most of the time doesn't have a landscape option? I'll never nope. know. And then the banner ad, the obnoxious banner ad at the bottom. I'm paying you for a service, CBS. Why are you showing me ads? Give me a break. Another, another thing is just the like the video portion itself, like trying to fast forward or get to a chapter break. There, there are no chapter breaks. Yeah, no There's... chapter breaks. It doesn't give you the option to like skip ahead a certain amount of seconds or back right. a certain amount of seconds. Um, it doesn't even give you the option to like swipe across the screen one direction or the other to fast forward or rewind. You have to try to get in on that uh, scribbler bar and be real precise about where you want to be. <laughs> Which was funny because I was trying to look at something on the After Trek show and I was trying to gauge at what point I remembered it being on the episode and trying to dial into something specific. Forget about it. Yeah, especially on the on the phone size screen, you know, on the bigger screen, you, yeah. you have a little bit more to work with. Um, you know, each minute is a bigger section of space, but on the phone <laughs> screen, it can be real tough. So I hope CBS does some updates on the app. The service in general, I'm not displeased with, but the, mm -hmm. the app on Android phones specifically could use some work. All right. I, I'm sure we'll get into more of uh, <laughs> all access uh, talk later but uh maybe we should get to the news right aaron <laughs> yeah let's let's uh do that and head into the news uh so first up here jack Turk, discovery has become one of the top pirated shows ever and who didn't see that coming why. <laughs> could it have could it be have anything to do with what we were just talking about <laughs> <laughs> but I, I put in this article because I, I wanted to counteract the pirated with some good news. Uh, this broadcast uh, of the first episode, uh, they had 9.6 million uh, views on the first uh, showing of the first episode on CBS. It was a 1.9 rating amongst adults 18 to 49. And that CBS expects the numbers to rise to 15 million and a 3.0 rating when adding the seven days of delayed viewing. So that's incredible. I don't know if any Star Trek has premiered that high. Yeah, I, don't, I, I would doubt it, uh, especially considering how long ago uh, the last time there was a Star Trek TV premiere. But uh, I, I know it wasn't nearly as heavily anticipated, even though there had been some time you know, between Voyager and Enterprise. It wasn't this much time. And there wasn't mm -hmm. as much hype around it. I don't. I don't recall there being, you know, all that excitement 
that we saw for Discovery. So uh, CBS's uh, marketing team definitely doing their job well, getting that hype up there, getting people interested. Yeah, they did a good job. Like It seemed like uh, there was a new video or something new every day on their Facebook page. There was a new promo, a new image, anything. And the big push was at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Like I think that really was when the marketing really ramped up and kicked in. And, I mean, they had me hooked. I was waiting for some new content, like, every day. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's been a wait, and um, it was so exciting to, to be able to, even though I was, you know, streaming it online, I wasn't, you know, I didn't have uh, CBS pulled up on my actual TV. I probably could have if I'd have gotten my... Uh, we're in a weird zone where I'm at as far as where broadcast TV is goes. We don't have any cable or satellite provider mm-hmm. whatsoever we are strictly online we are a quote-unquote cord cutting family uh have been for Same several here. years now so mm-hmm. you know if we want to watch live tv over broadcast we literally have an antenna and we watch it uh, typically we use that uh once a week during dancing with the star season and that's it um other than that <laughs> everything is online <laughs> and this was no exception but it was the first time in a long time that I've been really excited for the release of something online. Like, other things have gotten me like, ooh, that, that's coming out soon? Cool, I'll try to watch it as soon as I can after it comes out. You know, even even the Marvel Netflix series, which I really enjoy. Even those, mm-hmm. I still, you know, I think the first season of Daredevil, I watched the first couple of episodes within the first day or two of its release. Sure. But that's it. Um, I wasn't one of these guys who, the second they're available, oh, it's 12.01 a.m., they're available, now I'm going to sit here and binge 12 episodes. Um, No, it's more of a, oh, cool, it's there now, I'll get to it when I get to it. Um, This was, I was literally on the page, refreshing, waiting for those episodes to pop into the queue so that I could start playing them. I was so glad that they made After Trek, like, they they gave that a half hour after, if you watch both back-to-back, they still gave you a half hour to like be prepared to watch after Trek because I needed a little bit of that overlay since the episode was delayed when it premiered. And I'm so glad I got to watch after Trek live because I felt like I was really part of that like live crowd that was talking about it on social media. So I, I really enjoyed that. And typically I'm not a big fan of those types of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I watch Walking Dead, so I know the concept. But I knew because these types of shows, they do behind the scenes, they do interviews and all that stuff. I mean, I don't care who the host is. I don't care about any of that. I'm just like, I need all the Star Trek Discovery content ever right now. So <laughs> I, I was so glad because that night was just... It was filled with discovery, and I loved it. I only have one issue with the with the After Trek show. Like I, I watched, I didn't watch it live. I actually just watched it for the first time today. I did enjoy it, and I love the behind the scenes stuff. I love that they got the actors and the producers and the writers mm-hmm. and stuff on there, and that's really cool. My only issue is that they present it as if it's a fan show, kind of like what this is. You know, they present it in that manner where you're getting that 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 they're acting as if it's just this fan show, but you know that there's never going to be anything critical about the show on After Trek. There's never going to be anybody saying, well, here's where I think they went wrong. That's just not a thing that's going to happen. And I can get that Mm. from a true behind-the-scenes show, but when they present it in the manner where you're supposed to believe it's this fan production, it it, it almost feels like it's being a little deceptive in that regard. That being said, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, 
I'm not the biggest Matt Mira fan, but sure. he was he was enjoyable in this particular case. I didn't have any any hangups about it, and uh, it was cool to get that behind the scenes uh, take and uh, to to hear from some of the actors and uh, producers and such on the show. And I I want that whole set to be like my podcast area. Like, oh, I want I, that, that table so bad. That, yeah, that table. table is awesome. <laughs> and and the fact that they could do red alert lighting was freaking awesome. That, that was, was great. It really was. Get some LED lights in here. <laughs> I need to truck up my uh, my room here. No doubt. I know even even my studio space. I was looking around. I'm like, oh man, I I have several pieces of of Trek art, um, Trek you know Trek stuff that I've picked up. I have a lot of it at my desk at work, but I actually don't have any currently down in the studio. Need to fix that. Yeah. It's because I, I took most of it to work, so I have it at my desk, you know, where I work every day instead. But I know I have at least a couple of prints that aren't at work that I could uh, throw in frames and put down here. Very cool. So uh, why don't we move on to our next bullet point here. Discovery sets all-access record. According to CBS, Star Trek Discovery broke a new record for subscriber signups in a single day, eclipsing the previous record held by the 2017 Grammy Awards. Yay, Star Trek is better than the Grammy Awards. It's, it's a low bar, but I'll take it. I mean, I'm glad that it is better, but it does seem like a low bar to be going by. Plus, how many records are there because this, <laughs> this service right. is less than a year old? Yeah, I fully expected quite a few people to to wait until you know the week of or the weekend of Mm-hmm. before signing up, uh, especially if they're offering any kind of trial, anything like that. I think they'll see another record, or at least a, a very big day, the day the last episode is released. Yes. When people can because then sign up for people... one month and binge the whole series. Exactly. And I, I know we're, we'll talk a little bit about the complainers and stuff, but it's like yeah. some people are like, oh my god, why do I have to pay a whole year for this stupid service and it's like you don't (laughs) you can wait for the show to be over and pay for one stinking month it's six bucks or nine if you don't want to deal with commercials like how hard is that just wait till the show's done and get your free weekend or whatever and just binge the hell out of it yeah yeah there, (laughs) there are options the only reason you have to necessarily pay is if you want to watch it every week as it comes out, which I am more than willing to do. That's what a true fan does, (laughs) damn it. (laughs) Well, I not only want to see it as soon as I can, but I also want to support the production of more shows. And as a cord cutter, I don't mind feeding into these Mm -hmm. online-only exclusive type things because I know ultimately I feel this is where most places are going to end up going. We're going to see more and more of this from different production companies. They're going to realize, you know what? We can get a better budget. We can tell better stories. We can do better stuff. We can we can just produce a better product if we go to this, uh, you know, essentially pay for play type setup, where the people who are actually watching it are directly financing the production of these shows, as opposed to the advertisers financing the shows. So I, I feel that this is a better model. Mm-hmm. In in general, it isn't there yet across the board, 
but I feel that it will be. And so I don't mind helping it along, <laughs> so to speak, and you know, being one of those early adopters to that type of format. I think we're already seeing it. Um, well, this this is the first time, like a- at the Emmys, it was the first time that streaming exclusive series outpaced regular TV shows for awards. And yeah, I think you're going to see that uh, continuing in general the, mm-hmm. the, again because they just when you're making it when the people who want the product are directly paying for it, I think the product is going to ultimately be better. You know, you're not yeah. creating a product that the advertisers think will sell to the people. You're creating a product to directly sell to the people, and that's why I think shows like you know, like I said, I enjoyed After Trek, but I think shows like like this, like what we're doing right now, are important as well because you yeah. get to hear. Uh, the criticisms as well as the accolades. And, you know, we get to say, here's what I didn't like. And then they can take a look at that and say, okay, well, here's what the people who are directly financing this product are saying. And they Mm -hmm. can take that into account. And I think ultimately that makes better TV for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And plus the fact that, you know, not only is this on CBS All Access in North America, but... Around the world, it's through Netflix, and Netflix paid a significant amount for this show. They put a lot of faith into it, and I think the budget per episode on Discovery is like something around $8 million, That's and six, $6 million of that is from Netflix. So all the people saying, oh man, this show's going to tank, and we're not even going to get a second season, it's practically already in the bag that we will. There are a lot of people in the United States uh, that forget sometimes that the rest of the world exists <laughs> when, when, when it comes to media. You know, they look yeah. at it and say, oh, uh, it only got 9.6 million views. Well, that's just that's 9.6 million American households that watched this show on the opening night over broadcast. That's not even counting the people that downloaded it through streaming like I did. That's that's not even counting all across the world. That's not counting Canada who watched it on Space Space. Channel or whatever they got. And that's definitely not counting the rest of the world watching on Netflix. (laughs) Oh, my God. When you guys, when I was listening to that episode where you guys were talking about the trailer, and Eric, you were like, yeah, it's on some Canada channel like like Space. And you didn't even say Space. It was like... Like sky. <laughs> it, was, it was like sky or some one world thing. I was I was practically screaming in my car. I'm like it's space. <laughs> it's the space channel. <laughs> it was just funny. <laughs> I, was, I was this close to getting it. <laughs> but, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jinx. All right. So yeah, have either of you guys read the uh, companion book that just came out, Star Trek Discovery: Desperate Hours? I have not yet, but I read an interview or no, I read a review on, uh, I think it was Trek movie or Trek core or something. And they were, they did, they did a review of this whole book and they were saying that, oh yeah, it explains the uniform differences. It talks about this. It talks about that. I was like, man, I'm going to have to read this book. (laughs) I have it uh, downloaded on my Kindle app on my tablet. I just haven't gotten a chance to sit down and read it yet. Uh, probably because I've been too busy rewatching Discovery all week long. <laughs> uh. So uh, what interesting thing have you found out, Aaron? Uh, so from an excerpt from the book, it explains the difference between the Discovery uniform and the TOS uniform. 
we have here Gant and his team from the uh, Senzu. Shenzhou. 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 Sky. No, I'm saying it wrong. Star or something like that. Uh, from no, that it, ship. No, uh, it's, it's, it's Shenzhou. <laughs> like, the, they say it. The, the ZH in Chinese is more like a J. So, Shenzhou? Yes. Okay. That. Shenzhou. Yes. Shenzhou. <laughs> War. I can't even say English words. Uh, <laughs> War Dark. No talk. <laughs> Wore dark blue Starfleet utility jumpsuit uniform with black trim, while the Enterprise team sported pale gold or light blue jerseys over black trousers, a new uniform style that so far had been issued exclusively to the crews of Starfleet's vaunted Constitution-class starships. I can't help but, but laugh over this. So they're saying, basically what they're saying is, listen, guys, we spent so much money on your brand new ship. It's so cool. It's so awesome. You got, got this Constitution-class ship. Listen, we don't have money for the fancy uniforms they got, though. So you just, you're, gonna, <laughs> you're just going to have these shirts, okay? Yeah, with the, with the uh, weird ribbon around the sleeves. Yeah, that's no, it's fine. It's fine. Nobody will know that it's different just because, you know, they're only going to encounter you. So it's fine. It's fine. Listen, do you want phasers or do you want fancy uniforms? I mean, the choice is yours. Okay, okay, but this isn't the first time that this crap has happened in-universe. I mean, Generations, they had both uniform styles going, and then the whole thing with Deep Space Nine, you know, having their uniform changeover and not even really talking about it, and then Voyager... If you're on a space station, I guess you get this weird... Exactly. Uniform, but if you're on a starship, you get this other uniform. But when the people from the space station get onto the starship, they don't have to change uniforms. They can still wear their space station uniforms. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. There, there's always been weird issues with Starfleet uniforms. Okay, and when you look at the timeline, it's like they're changing the style of uniforms like every ten or twenty years anyway. Yeah, so right. who cares? <laughs> look, look at Next Generation. If you look at the run of Next Generation. I don't think we've ever seen an admiral wearing the same uniform from one episode to the next. <laughs> I think there was a different uniform for every single single admiral we ever saw. So, there was. It was all over the place. Maybe that should be an episode that we do, is, is Starfleet uniforms. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> but might have to do I, a two-parter. I, I like, <laughs> but I like that they at least ed, uh, mention it, because this is set in the prime timeline. Right. Yeah, I I just hope that this is one of the one of the few instances where they use the book to try to bridge the gap because I don't want a book full of stuff that's just for the for the fan that nitpicks at that sort of thing. Like I consider myself a pretty big fan and I nitpick mm-hmm. at certain things, but there are certain things that I'm willing to let go. And I just I just come to acknowledge that with every new show we get we're going to mm-hmm. have new uniforms. I just it's just something that just, you know, it, it flows in my mind. It's not it's not a problem for me. I don't need to explain it away. I just get it. It's like, you know, I I'm a huge James Bond fan as well. And I don't sure. need some sort of retconned explanation as to why their face keeps changing throughout the years. I know <laughs> the actors get old and you have to replace them. There's been 50 years of movies. Like you have to change this. I'm okay with yeah. that. 
Yeah, and it's not like James Bond is like 90 years old at this point. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just it's it's the character and he evolves throughout the different times. Like and that's how we should view Star Trek because I'm sorry we're not going to have cardboard sets from the 60s on an HD 4K streaming modern show. It's not going to happen. It's going to look dumb. Look filmed on a 4K camera. Oh my gosh, that would look bad. It would um, look horrible. Yeah, it's and the only time it looked good was when Enterprise did it when they recreated for In a Mirror Darkly. But even then, there were certain instances where it's like, okay, why are these pipes all different colors? Oh wait, it's because it's set in that 60s style. Right. And the the Constitution class ship that they were on still looked good, but even then it was really pushing it. And that was kind of a really cheesy episode anyway in terms of just the actors really hamming it up for their Mirror Universe counterparts. But but that was like already Enterprise. That's already 12, 13 years ago that In a Mirror Darkly aired. It's, It's a modern TV show. And we're going to have a modern look to these starships. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Just shut up and enjoy the story. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. When we, when we talk a little bit later about our individual thoughts on the show, I do have some thoughts specifically on that. Okay. Like I said, I, I'm excited to read the book. I really am. I just hope yeah. that it's not filled with too much stuff like this. Like a few things like this that, that help bridge the gap are okay. If the entire book is filled with, here's how we're going to explain this, and here's how we're going to explain this, then it becomes a little tedious. I like the mm-hmm. occasional thing. As, as I've stated before, I am a, I, I'm sci-fi bi. I enjoy Star Wars as well as Star Trek. And uh, one of the biggest complaints people have in the Star Wars universe is that George Lucas made the error of saying that the Millennium Falcon could make the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. Well, you know, parsecs being a, a unit of distance, not a unit of time, so he made an error. Yeah, he messed up. Whatever. In one of the books, they do explain how that actually is a correct statement by him. And that's oh, why God. I love that they doubled down on it in uh, Force Awakens. Like, I'm glad that they mm-hmm. didn't try to brush over that. Like, they, they doubled down on it, and I was happy about that. But that was just one excerpt from that one book. The rest of the book told a completely unique story. It wasn't a whole bunch of stuff filling in gaps from other stories. That just happened to have that one thing that tied things together. And I was totally fine with that. Cool. Uh, Next up, the official Star Trek skill for Amazon's Alexa. So with Star Trek, you can test your knowledge with daily trivia questions on Alexa. At the end of each trivia round, you'll be rewarded with audio clips from behind the scenes of the newest addition to the franchise, Star Trek Discovery. And I remember there was something that they did for Klingons as well. And Alexa could teach you Klingon, which I think is hilarious. I have two Amazon Dots, uh, second gen, and they're, uh, they're awesome. I have it connected to my Hue lights, so I can be... I have it still set for Alexa, but I can change it to computer if I wanted yeah. to as the wake word. Yeah, so I can control the lights. It's awesome. That is pretty cool. I've, I've thought about yeah. looking into one of the dots or one of the other products. I just I don't have enough other stuff that would be connected that would make it worthwhile. Oh, um, yeah. Like if I had, you know, like a, a good sound system that I could tie into, you know, my my Audible or my Amazon Music or something like that, to where I could tell it to play music for me and stuff like that. But I don't, I don't really have anything like that. So, 
I don't have enough of the other things that it would connect to to really make it worthwhile. It would just be me mm-hmm. asking Alexa questions all day, and that would probably get boring after a little while. Well, you can ask Alexa to tell you a Star Trek joke, and it will comply. Nice. But is it good? <laughs> That's not the point, Eric. You can ask it to tell you a Star Trek joke. Uh, uh, but yeah. All right. So yeah. won't we won't we move on to the next uh, section of the show? Would you buy it? And as uh, you know, customary, we'll ask each other if we'll buy it, and then let you know what it is. So, uh, Eric and Eric, <laughs> would you buy this? Absolutely not. This looks like crap. I have no reason for this. This is going to absolutely shock you when when you reveal where it's from. <laughs> but yes, I would buy this. Oh, okay. oh interesting. That is shocking. <laughs> Uh, I've actually bought a different series of of this, but what are we talking about? The Star Trek: The Next Generation Geeky Tiki's available from Think Geek for seventy nine ninety nine. This is a set of six cups. Uh, we get Captain Picard, a Cardassian, a Ferengi, Geordi LaForge, Lieutenant Worf, and the Borg. Is it Hugh though? No, it's some generic. Uh, <laughs> oh, never mind. I'm out. I changed my answer. No, I'm just kidding. Is it you? No, I actually ran into these for the first time. Um, not the next generation ones, but they had at my local grocery store. They had the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy version of these. Okay. And so that's why I yeah. said I, I would actually buy these because I looked at them, and the mm-hmm. first thing I said was like, "Oh, these are cool. I wish they were Star Trek characters." <laughs> and so, so then to find out that they have them in Star Trek characters also, I'm like, yes. I'm also a little bit obsessed with, with mugs and glassware and things like that. Like, That's mm-hmm. one of the number one things that I will buy. Because even though I have so much already, it's still one of those things that I look at and be like, but I could actually use this. You know? <laughs> right. And so, I mean, if and you look at my desk at work, I have literally six different mugs in a corner of my desk. And there's nothing on it that can rub off and, you know, completely change the look of it. <laughs> right. So I actually have the Captain Kirk and the Spock Geeky Tiki's, oh, uh, which run for twelve ninety nine a piece. I actually got one of them half off right. from the from an actual Think Geek store location, which was awesome. Uh, so I said, I have to buy it. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, these are one of those things, one of those few exceptions to my rule as far as Think Geek goes, because these aren't made by Think Geek. These are made by a third-party company. The ones I looked at in the store seemed pretty well made. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a good, thick ceramic. It wasn't, you know, one of these really, really thin... Uh, ceramic mug type of things where you see where it, where you think like if I look at this thing wrong it's going to shatter, but it's not like too <laughs> thick either. It's not like one of those like clunky like oh my god I'm gonna you know if I put this on my table my table's going to crash down on it. No, it 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 looks like it's pretty decent quality just from the uh, from the impression I got looking at these the Guardians of the Galaxy ones at the store. How do they you know you actually have them? How do they look and feel quality wise? You know in your hand. Well, I haven't actually taken them out of the box yet, but they look like they're okay. <laughs> I like the way they look. I just haven't taken them out of the actual box yet. Oh, well, Th- Think Geek also has the full set of original series Geeky Tiki's. 
They've got Spock, Kirk McCoy, Gorn, Klingon, and the Mugatu. Wow. Which is, you don't see a lot of uh, Mugato or Mugatu. Uh, don't worry, Mugatu, Mr. Mugatu. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just I, I'm not really impressed by the style of these. I don't really see the appeal. I don't know. It's all in good fun. <laughs> yeah. So two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> it's it's uh, one of those things, kind of like the pops, uh, where you either I love pops. get them or you don't. Uh, for me, yeah. I'm, I, I say that, but then I also say that I'm kind of in the middle on it. Certain ones I enjoy. I own several that have been given to me. I have never, I have yet to purchase one for myself. Um, other than I, I did receive two in subscription boxes that I had. Um, so technically, I did purchase those for myself, but I didn't, you know, specifically purchase pop figures. They just happened to be included. And the ones I have, I, I enjoy. I mean, I, I keep them on my desk at work. I've got them all in a little in a little row, you know, hanging out together. It's one of those things that I can just kind of take or leave. You know, I understand the appeal, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily understand the obsession that some have uh, with them. <clears throat> Steven of the Socially Awkward Studios show. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So, yeah, why don't we jump into the actual topic of the show now? What are we talking about anyway? <laughs> uh, Star Trek, what? So this is uh, Spectral Scans, Star Trek Discovery Episodes 1 and 2. and It's a new name for a new segment. Yeah, Spectral Scans, any reviews of TV shows or, I guess, movies, anything that we're seeing and we do a review of, Spectral Scans. Sounds good Copyright. to me. I'm on board. Trademark. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so my thoughts on Michael Burnham. And uh, feel free to jump in, guys, if you have any points here. After she performed the Vulcan neck pinch on her commanding officer in order to fire on the Klingons, I initially lost all hope in the character. In my mind, I immediately turned against her. And then I remembered there was another officer that was imprisoned for crimes that got other officers killed, and I had no issues with him. That character, Tom Paris, became a fan favorite. We see crew members on Voyager have disdain for Tom at first. I think over the course of the next 13 episodes, we will see this happen to the Burnham character. She also shares some qualities with Worf, uh, orphaned by an attack uh, by aliens and adopted by another group of aliens uh, struggling with their identity. Now, that was funny that you brought up the similar qualities with uh, Worf because... Matt Mira brought that up on After Trek. And uh, Aaron Herbert said, he's one of the producers, he said, oh, Romulans are a dirty word in the writer's room for Star Trek Discovery. He's like, we can't can't have Romulans. We can't talk about the Romulans. We can't mention the Romulans. And that's, of course, because it's set 10 years before Kirk's and Spock's missions, which balance of terror we find out, Oh man, the Romulans are back and they they're related to Vulcans. So I think it's awesome that the writer's room said, hold up. We can't do Romulans in discovery. I think that's so great. So I'm, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that because that was mm-hmm. the similar thing that they talked about in after Trek was the similarities with Worf that, right. you know, their parents were killed by, you know, another alien faction. 
Yeah, I totally get what you guys are saying. I, I definitely see that similarity as well. Um, it, and it doesn't even, the, the Romulan aspect doesn't even really matter in that respect. I mean, the fact is, Worf sure. was, uh, you know, in the future, you know, they're not going to be bringing up Worf in, in Discovery either. Oh, unless they bring up Colonel Worf. <laughs> or there or the, I mean, or the, the Moog uh, clan, the Moog house. Yeah, yeah. We could see oh, we could yeah. see some of the House of Moog. Uh, that would be interesting. I, I would be uh, definitely curious to see if they ever even even if it's just a, a brief mention, even if it's just something you know a little Easter egg for the fans. That would be that would be cool. I would be okay with that as long as they don't try to make it too much of a point to try to tie in. I really sure. want them to tell their own story. You know, I know they're oh, stuck yeah. in this this gap in the timeline where obviously. They can't stray too far, or it steps on stories that have already been told. But I do want them to tell their own story, and I don't want them to necessarily have to have everything tie into something we've already seen. Like, the occasional drop of something that, that, that ties back, I'm cool with. But if they try too hard, I think we're going to end up with... You, 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 we're we're going to end up with the last episode of Enterprise, is what we're going to end up with. And we don't <laughs> oh, want God. that. <laughs> No, 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 I want, want that. That. <laughs> that was a good next gen episode though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't a good finale to Enterprise. <laughs> okay, don't get don't get me started on that. <laughs> but um but no on your point, Eric, about continuity, from all the interviews I've read and heard and all the people, it seems like they have so many continuity police people on staff that they are well-defined in what they can and can't do. So I think that gives them a good set of rules to say, oh, well then maybe we can show this part of the Star Trek universe that we've never seen before. Maybe it was mentioned once in this episode that happened in this time period, but we can expand on it somehow. So I think it, it, I know it's, there's certain writers that would want to do other things, but I'm glad that they have that like check and balance in place where, you know, a writer could suggest an idea, but they're like, oh, no, no, we can't do that because of canon. Because I think it forces the writers to think of their own unique original story. And like you, that's exactly what I want. I want new, fresh takes on the Star Trek universe. And in your point, Aaron, to, you know, Michael Burnham being, you know, a mutineer, that's something we really haven't seen a lot of in Star Trek before, especially for a main character. This is right. huge, and I'm glad that they're shaking things up a bit. Right, and actually one thing it kind of reminded me of, sort of, the moment in Star Trek 2009 when Spock kind of loses his cool on yeah. the bridge. He's uh, emotionally compromised. Mm-hmm. And I think Burnham was emotionally compromised when she neck-pinched Captain. Well, no doubt. I mean, and I'll explain this in, in some of my points, but she even said herself that she didn't feel like she was acting like herself. Yeah. So, clearly, this was a high-stress situation. And, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's affected because, I mean, even though she says, oh, yeah, just because it was Klingons, that's not going to affect my judgment. Bull. It's not going to affect your judgment. Like, if your parents were killed by this alien species and suddenly they're back, yeah, you're going to want to maybe kick some ass. 
So right. she she can say all she wants that, you know, just because it's Klingons, it's not affecting her judgment. I think that's total bunk. She was trying to fool herself. Right. Because obviously it did because she mutinied against her captain of seven years. Like, who would do that? I, I also, I, I agree with you, but I also think it was a deeper thing. Like, she honestly, and she even says this in, in you know, later on during her court-martial, she says she honestly believed at that moment that she was doing mm-hmm. the right thing to protect her captain and to protect the rest of the Federation. She honestly believed in that moment that her course of action was the best course of action and uh, damned if anyone was going to stop her from doing that. Instead of just being able to, to, to present her case and be like, no, seriously, this is the best course of action, it was, okay, I'm just going to make this happen. And that's where she crossed that line. But in the moment, she believed that that mm-hmm. was the best course of action. And, you know, there's no telling if that would have had uh, an, an effect or not. The way events played out, I don't think her way would have had any better effect than what happened because it was too well planned out by right. Takuvma at that point. He, he had everything lined up the way he wanted it. And I think only the very end was the only thing that shocked him as far as how it played out. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and we've clearly seen this in this season promo and some promos for uh, the next few episodes, that this is a decision. Yes, she thought it was okay at the time and she was making the right call at the time, but now she's going to have to deal with the consequences and ramifications of her choice throughout this entire series. And I think that's some deep character diving that we just really haven't seen before to this level in Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I'll get into that even a little bit more when we get to All right. to, to my thoughts as well. But yeah, I, I do agree. Absolutely. Okay. My next point here, holograms. I thought the effect of the holograms were cool. I dig it, but it kind of already seems overused. I'm pretty sure these holograms are just light projections and have no physical form like, you know, say the Doctor from Voyager. And these projectors seem to be everywhere, even in crew quarters. At least in the command level crew quarters, you know. Right. We, we do only see it specifically in the first officer's quarters, so it may be something that uh, only command level officers have, you know, in their actual quarters. Or it might be something shipwide, like you said, you know, we, that we don't necessarily know yet, but... Yeah, it's definitely a technology that seems to be readily available. Well, I think they're kind of mirroring what's happening in the real world now, like augmented reality and uh, some of these hologram type of uh, displays that you see at trade shows and stuff. It's, It's a technology that's real and... It's something that, again, Star Trek is doing this forward-reaching, forward-looking thing that Star Trek has always done through its 51 years. And now I think this is just their answer to the view screen. It really is, because that's what it seems like they're using it for. And there's no there's no difference between the Klingon holograms 
and the Federation holograms. I like that they kind of glitch out a little bit because they're obviously affected by communication relays and distortions that are in the area. Uh, We saw that happen. Michael was talking to Sarek. He kind of glitched out and suddenly he was sitting on the desk. And I actually really like that. I, I like that it showed that this isn't a perfect technology. It's not the holograms that you see in the holodeck. It's nothing like that. Right. So next up, the Klingon cloak. I'm not a fan that this group of Klingons have obtained the cloaking technology. The scattering field of the beacon would have been a more logical way to conceal the sarcophagus ship. Or hollow technology that we saw from the Romulans in Star Trek Enterprise. You'll have to actually refresh my memory on this one. When is the first time that we, in the current canon, have known the Klingons to have cloaking technology? Uh, around Kirk's time. Yeah, when they so when they lost the model for the Bird of Prey in the original series, the Romulans end up using the D7 class, and then after that... So in Kirk's time, they're known to already have it, or was it a new technology that was like, oh, hey, this is brand new, or was it just well, it was, brand new was, to the Federation? It was new with the Romulans in Balance of Terror. Okay. Well, I, the Klingons I, yeah. just showed up with it, and they're like, oh, oh, I guess you guys have it too. Kind of. It's It's such a muddled thing that they never really talked about, you know, to that detail, but... I think that there that's going to be a major plot point in Discovery because it seemed like Takumba's uh, ship and his team was really the only Klingons that had it, right. especially since Voke was so like, oh, and he's cl- made our ships cloaked. It's like, so you guys, have you seen this right here? <laughs> okay, Volk was the total hype man for Takumba. Like yeah, he, he became the ultimate hype man for him. <laughs> but uh but I think it's interesting. I think it's something that they're going to dive into a little bit on the Klingon side. I think that's going to be a major plot point this season because they made it a point to say, ooh, look at this cloaking technology. Look how crazy this is. So I think they may, like, maybe he did strike a deal with the Romulans. And maybe that whole Romulan comment in After Trek was to throw us all off. You know, maybe the ultimate endgame is that that we've seen in other series is that the Romulans are puppeteering things like they always do behind the scenes, trying to get factions to play against (laughs) each other. Or it may be my crazy Trekkie conspiracy theories (laughs) going on. No, I think you're absolutely right. It is definitely possible that either he struck a deal with some Romulans to get this technology, or he simply, you know, uh, you know, came across the Romulan ship, uh, attacked, and you know, either destroyed or captured it and took the technology. Mm-hmm. Either way, it's very possible that they could explain this away by, you know, it's like, yeah, the Federation has had no contact with the Romulans as of yet. We don't know they exist yet, but that doesn't mean the Klingons don't know they exist. We don't exactly. know what the Klingons know at this point in time. And it's not something that they're you know likely to tell us when we're at war with them. So it's absolutely possible that they could have gotten it from the Romulans. 
What I loved about the Klingon cloaking technology was the fact that they did keep the one uh, fatal flaw that, uh, you know, the, yes. the, 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 the such a fla- fatal flaw that they wrote an entire movie about what would happen <laughs> if one ship had the ability to overcome this stupid flaw. Um, and the, the fact that the ships can't fire while they're cloaked. And instead, he's actually crafted essentially an icebreaker ship that's designed uh, right. to oh. ram and destroy other ships while cloaked. That is so odd. Like, it's like, oh, man, that sucks for us. But it's awesome. I <laughs> oh, man. loved that ship. Oh, my God. It was so crazy because I always wondered, like, when we had those teaser trailers and they showed that ship breaking apart like that, I was like, what the hell would cause it something to rip apart like that? And it was such a huge reveal in the episode itself. Like, even my wife was just like, Oh my God! Like, like what a <laughs> it was such a shocking a gun moment. right there. He's like, "Yeah, I'll agree to your ceasefire, and I'm gonna send my envoy." Like, yeah, yeah. he sent your Prepare envoy right into us. your. <laughs> like, oh, you son of a gun! You, you, oh. I see what you did there. You didn't shoot him. You, 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 you adhered to the ceasefire. Technically. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, you shady oh. son of a gun! <laughs> when, when, because I I rewatched that episode obviously uh, four times. But when when Takumba says "prepare to receive my envoy," it's just such it's so well written and delivered in that payoff. It was perfect. It was awesome. Yeah, that that scene. Uh, was absolutely amazing, and like I said, I, I love the fact that they like. So he's got this technology, and he realizes that okay, I can I can hide, but I can't shoot while I'm hidden. And what does a Klingon want to do more than anything else? Is shoot at stuff or destroy stuff? So he's des- devised a specific ship that's that's de- that is specific to attack while cloaked. It can't shoot, but it can run into you. And you could tell by the shape of the ship that that is exactly what it was designed to do. It looked like the front of one of those icebreaker uh, mm-hmm. boats that are, that are designed to pass through frozen water. Um, it just it looked like brilliant. the edge of a big blade. That's yeah. essentially what it was. Yeah. It's a bad awesome. ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great. I agree. So next up, Sarek. I think it's pretty messed up that Sarek melded with Michael but never did with Spock. I, I yeah. agree on the one hand. <laughs> However, I think it comes down to, I think what we're going to find out, most likely, my guess, is that typically he would not meld with a child unless it was their wish to do so. In this case, he did it because he had to. It was the only way to save her life was to meld with her. So he did right. it out of necessity. Whereas with Spock, he was never presented with that necessity. It was always Spock's choice. And Spock, for whatever reason, chose not to. Or, or, or maybe he didn't choose not to, but never chose to ask to. And Sarek never offered say, you know, with the assumption that if he wants to, he'll come to me. So, and, and then they had that divide when he left for Starfleet and they didn't talk to each other for 18 years. And then by that point they were adults. So, you know, I mean, Vulcans are Vulcans, but at the same time, they're pretty much like stubborn humans too. <laughs> and, you know, when you have a father son falling out, it's not going to be like 40 years later, you're going to say, well, dad, give me that hug now. Or like, Hey dad, give me that m- mind meld. Now I'm ready. Yeah, exactly. So, Especially when it's that yeah. uh, emotional of a connection, it's more than just a hug or a handshake or something like that. It's really deep. Right. Cause I mean, we saw that in unification part two, when Spock melded with Picard to share 
what Picard experienced when when Sarek melted with him. Right. Now, Aaron, get to your next point because I have I have something I want to talk about with that. <laughs> okay, Vulcan telepathy. I think this is the first time that we've seen a telepresence via mind meld uh, from so far away. There have been episodes where we've seen Spock put thoughts into guards' heads, as in the episode Taste of Armageddon, behind a cell door. We also see Spock feel the combined shock and terror in the minds of 400 of his fellow Vulcans aboard the USS Intrepid as they died light years away in the episode The Immunity Syndrome. So can a pure Vulcan mind who has been trained be able to pull something like this off i guess okay so in when sarek was doing this he felt a little bit of pain mm-hmm. and he said that this is damaging him biologically like this this is putting a very heavy toll on him just to even do this to communicate with michael and my thought is what if this taxing effect was the thing that made him develop Bendy syndrome later in life, which is what he died from. Oh, interesting. So I'm thinking, what if this was the start of that, of, of maybe his mental degradation, where because he shared part of his soul, part of his katra with Michael, and because he used that long distance phone call, essentially, maybe this was the thing that started or at least made him more susceptible to Bendy syndrome later in life. Man, That's no wonder thoughts. no wonder he's never talked about her. Exactly. <laughs> that could be it too. Yeah. No, but for real. <laughs> I yeah, mean, no, no, I agree yeah. with you. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, no, I didn't think about that. You know, when I was watching the episode, obviously, I, like Aaron, thought, okay, well, this is new. <laughs> <laughs> This is something we we haven't seen before. You know, yeah, we do know that they have uh, a telepathic ability to a point, but it's usually, you know, something that has to be uh, physically present and, you know, not even, not just physically present, but in physical contact. You know, mind mm-hmm. they you have to put your hands on them. And so for them to be able to do it over that great distance. And yeah, when, when Sarek says that something is, he said the physical cost is significant is what he said yes. during the in the episode and when when somebody with that you know when Sarek says that you know that he's really saying ow son of a oh, this hurts <laughs> right you know that would that would be the equivalent of, of any normal human like seriously like oh this is bad but Sarek's like mm, yeah, yeah it's significant all right and um, i mean spock said it was difficult for him to contact the guard through the cell door imagine what Sarek is going through and and that's why i took that line as like oh my god he had this mental degradation that he died from maybe this was the cause of it even though he lived this long life maybe this event was the spark that that started him being susceptible to bendy yeah, it's a, it at least opened the door potentially. Yeah, yeah it's it's absolutely. I hadn't thought about that specifically, but yeah, and it, it may be a, another reason. You could even go back to maybe that's a reason he never offered it to uh, to Spock. Maybe it was it was something that he thought. You know, if I do this with Spock, especially if he's you know once he had left for Starfleet, you know, what if I have to what if I have to mm-hmm. communicate with him that way? 
you know, what if I sense that he's in danger or whatever and I have to communicate, you know, will I be able to survive doing it again? So he chose not to, to put the offer out there in order to, to prevent the possibility. But Spock might see that as, oh, well, my dad's still a jerk and that confirms everything I thought about him, <laughs> which ironically, you know, Sarah trying to protect his son might be the thing that caused their rift to be even deeper. Until, you know, we get to the original series and they kind of patch things up. But no, that's that's why I like seeing all these different connections and like trying to make these connections, because uh, I don't think anything is done by accident in this show. Right. No, there's definitely far too much research being done by the people behind this for anything to be accidental. I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think anything is by accident. However, not necessarily everything's going to to tie back, but I think it has a better chance of becoming significant than not. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So moving on to my next point here, the Vulcan hello. Now I thought this was going to be a completely different episode. So uh, I thought this was going to be like a, a tutorial on how to spread your fingers. <laughs> so I've seen people on Twitter complaining how the show has a Starfleet officer calling for them to shoot first uh, when it came to dealing with the Klingons. But if we look back, we see that in the Next Generation episode, The Emissary, Picard assumes that Kalar uh, has been sent to talk with the crew of that Klingon ship where they've all been cryogenically frozen. But Kalar says talking uh, will be a waste of time, and she believes that they should... There's no reasoning with the Klingons, and the only way to prevent loss of innocent life is to destroy the ship on site. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. It's it's a simple matter of logic. You, You think of the Vulcans as a peaceful race, but that's because you want to believe that peace is ultimately the most logical outcome. You want to believe that, you know, being a peaceful race, being friendly, is ultimately the most logical thing to do. However, when presented with a race that treats friendliness as an insult, then you have to change your logic. You, you have to look at it and say, okay, mm-hmm. this race will not respect us if we continue to try to talk to them, if we continue to try to open communications with them first and not shoot, and they and, and allow them to shoot first and then just try to defend ourselves. As long as we're in a defensive position, they will never respect us. Mm-hmm. And without respect, they will never want to be at peace with us because they will always consider us inferior until there's that, that measure of respect. So logically, it makes sense to have a Vulcan make that decision, be like, okay, well, when dealing with this specific culture... This is what we have to do, and and that's how that's how it works out. My thought on the Vulcan hello is that if this is such a good strategy in dealing with the Klingons, why do the Vulcans keep it a secret to the rest of the Federation? Like, is it just a one-time use kind of a thing, or you know, why isn't this standard practice among the Federation, especially since Vulcans are a founding member? Why would they keep a secret like this? But I thought it was interesting that Sarek knew about this, and he would know about this type of tactic because he is an ambassador. So he would know the best way to deal with each species. He does say in the episode that this worked for their situation, but it might not work for 
uh, humanship in this situation. Right. right. So exactly, yeah. and, and there's like, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, we know that Vulcan is more technologically advanced than Earth. We know that mm-hmm. they had, you know, obviously they made first contact with us. That they already had interstellar travel before we were, you know, warp capable. So we know that they have a, a, a higher level of technology. So that probably includes weapons and defenses as well. So they may be more respected when they open open fire. It also may be that as a generally peace-loving race, they don't find the logic in advising other races to be aggressive, to, to go to them and say, sure. here's what you need to do, shoot them first. They don't, they don't think that that's logical because they're like, no, you know, that's not, that's not how you create peace. It worked for us this one time, but that might not necessarily work for everybody, especially a race that, yeah, you know, may not be as technologically advanced in the weapons and defense department <laughs> as the Vulcans or the Klingons. So I can kind of understand why they would hold that information back. I feel like they would make it knowledge that was accessible, like here's what happened, like a report, mm-hmm. as opposed to a directive of how you should handle Klingons. Like, I don't think it should be the Vulcans saying, hey, here's what you should do if you run into a Klingon ship. But I think there should be a report somewhere saying, mm-hmm. here's what happened when we ran into Klingon ships and here's what we did. And just, just, just a straight up report so that other races and other members of the Federation could make their decision based on all of the information available instead of having to kind of find it through back channels. Like nobody would have known that's how Vulcans handled it if they didn't happen to have that guy who knew somebody in, <laughs> you know. Right. You know, so, I mean, on. this should have been information given to Starfleet when they first encountered them uh, but see, in Broken Bow. True, but Broken broken Bow is kind of a different situation. But, like Eric mentioned, who knows, maybe the Vulcans encountered the Klingons like a thousand years ago, and that's just kind of like ancient knowledge at that point, and mm. there's this already mutual respect between Klingons and Vulcans. But I wonder if the information, too, was it because the Vulcans were the only species to successfully attack the Klingons first, which gained that peaceful, mutual respect? Were were they the only ones that did it, and now it's really not going to work for anyone else who tries that tactic? Right. Yeah, that's kind of where I think it might be, at least where where they may be thinking. Whether or not it's true Mm -hmm. or not, it may be what the Vulcans are thinking, and that's why they're not giving that information. Because Kasarik was very reluctant to give that information to Michael. He's like... Oh, yeah, and and he said, use this carefully. Like, like, I'll tell you, (laughs) but don't assume this is going to work for you. And then, of course, what'd she do? She's like, this is going to work for us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Silly humans. My last point here is kind of addressing some issues people have with the ship designs of the of discovery but my theory here is the hull details of the federation and clean on ships might have been streamlined due to the war uh less complex superstructures in order to speed up the production now now that's a good point and keep in mind when we saw star trek 2009 from the kelvin verse the kelvin before the timeline divergence before the alternate universe divergence the Kelvin was essentially a prime ship. It was a prime oh, right. universe ship. Yep. Yep. So I totally have no problems with the ships being like kind of 
all techy on the outside and because the uh, the Shenzhou had very distinct like Aztec patterning uh, that we've seen on other ships you know more panels it felt and looked a lot like Enterprise and they even said that the Shenzhou was you know an older ship even when Michael Burnham came on seven years prior to what we saw in the episode it was already an old ship so I do like the fact, and it kind of fits in my, you know, head that the newer ships, like especially the Constitution class, which was a big thing in the original series, like they made a big deal that the Constitution class was top of the line, top ship of the line. So, yeah, we see all these smooth textures and and more streamlined in the original series. And some say that would be kind of look more basic. But in fact, it, it's it's why the Enterprise is so iconic. It's because it's so simple looking, yet it can do all these things and go to warp and all this. It's so simple looking that it looks way advanced. So I think if you put up the Constitution next to the Shenzhou, the Shenzhou is going to look older just because... It looks a bit down and dirty, and it looks like pieces uh, of technology are exposed. It looks like the nacelles are more open to mm-hmm. a point. And that's why I think it's so interesting when, if we or when we ever get to the discovery, like in episode three, it start like it, it feels like the discovery is almost somewhat experimental at least that's what i'm getting from the trailers and everything like Mm -hmm. there it's an experimental test bed type ship right and if you look at some of the details on the discovery from the newest trailer or the eagle moss model that they just uh previewed there are strips of hull plating that are smooth like the constitution it's not the whole ship isn't covered like that but parts of it are so I think we're very clearly seeing the design evolution of these ships. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree as well. We are they are trying to uh make it, you know, tie in. You know, there's obvious uh elements in the Shenzhou that uh are, are very NX like. You know, you mm-hmm. look at that ship and you can definitely see the lineage from the NX models going towards the newer models. So whether that was a, a product of war or whether that was a product of just, hey, we've decided that, you know, this is how we're going to make them now. Because that, that happens, you know. You go through phases in design, whether it be in cars or airplanes or whatever. You know, you have the basic, you know, what it has to do. But then you have the aesthetics that change over time. You know, you look at you look at an older car and you think, why did they make it look like that? It's horrible. And then you look at a new car and, uh, you know, 20 years from now, you can look at that same new car and be like, oh, why did they make it look like that? It's horrible. <laughs> um, I'm sure spaceships are exactly the same way. You know, you, 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 this design changes over time. And again, it's another one of those things where, well, I can see what they're doing with it. I also have to, to look at it from the perspective of it's a TV show. We're right. looking at a TV show made in the 60s compared to a TV show made in 2017. There's going to be differences. If it looked the same, we'd hate it. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, going to, there's going to be some differences, and that's okay. Now, this gets into my thoughts and observations of the show, and specifically, I'm going to start with the show's opening, the, the title sequence. 
for me, this was super modern. Online, I saw lots of people comparing it to Game of Thrones or Westworld, and almost as like a complaint. And I'm like, I think this is a good thing because it means Star Trek is staying relevant with the trends of storytelling and the visual looks of modern television. Most streaming shows today have super slick intros, while regular broadcast TV has phased out intros because they're trying to cram more commercials into it. So Discovery is no different from that. You have a streaming show, an exclusive streaming show, that has time to show a full minute and a half intro like we got in the days of old. So I also love that they incorporated all of the technical aspect of the gadgets and ships with like these exploded views and the different animations and the little tech callouts, which even more solidifies for me that the discovery that we're going to eventually get to is going to be this like on the drawing board experimental type ship. And some of the things that like Captain Lorca says like, Oh, we're making history and uh, you know, imagine the possibilities. Like I, a new I way think, to fly. Yeah. Yeah. And Oh, we're, we're, this is a new way to fly. Like all of that stuff. It, it just has me so excited. And when they release this opening a little bit ahead of the actual premiere, I loved it immediately. I thought it was slick. I loved the music. So, yeah, all the complaints about it looking like Game of Thrones or Westworld, to me, that's I, I don't accept that argument. It's a modern, relevant opening for a modern streaming television show. That's all it is. I got to completely agree. I really loved the opening. I was glad that we had an orchestral theme behind it. Uh, yes. That was the one thing. Like, I put this, you know, I, I love it. I still put it number two on my list of Star Trek show openings because, I mean, TNG is always going to be up there as my favorite. I just absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those ones I can, I can, just, I can just watch that by itself and, <laughs> and, and, and feel good. But this jumped right up to number two for me. Yes, it's different than previous treks. It's different than all previous treks. I mean, obviously, from TOS through Voyager, we got essentially space scenes. We got the ship traveling through space. We got planets, we got stars, we got nebulae, whatever. And then, you know, the credits and, and, and whatnot. And then Enterprise tried to shake things up, and I think where they really went wrong was with that god-awful pop rock theme that they tried to... Oh. Hey, I, I've got a little bit of faith of the heart. Like, I, I, I still like it, but I the did see by the itself comparisons. might be yeah. okay, but as a Star Trek opening theme, I can't, I can't do it. But I'm glad they didn't go that route with it. Sure. But, it, but, but yes, it's modern. It's, it's... Yeah. It's what's being done now. It's, that's the look that people are, are going to. I mean, and you, you brought up Game of Thrones and Westworld, but look at uh, the Netflix Marvel series. Oh, yeah. Very similar to those as well. Um, even oh, if you don't like that, like, um, I think Iron Fist is definitely the weakest 
of the Marvel Netflix offerings thus far. I haven't got, I haven't got there yet. I'm close, but it's I'm not, not there yet. Awful, but it's not up to par with Daredevil sure. and Jessica Jones. And unfortunately, the Defenders really felt like season two of Iron Fist more than anything else, which was unfortunate. Oh. It was good. It was still good. It was still <laughs> enjoyable, but it really it felt kind of Iron Fist heavy. I, th- I think it's because it came right after, so it was kind of it kind of felt into that flow, and I'm like, eh. But even still, even without the sh- you know not counting the show the openings are awesome <laughs> the openings for yeah. the defenders is amazing the opening for iron fist is brilliant all of these shows have these terrific graphical openings with music and credits and yeah it, it you know it's not just the the game of thrones and the west it's not just the hbo shows you know netflix is doing it too with their independent shows you know this is the way the the streaming world is going, and so I don't have a problem with it whatsoever. And it's cool looking. The music is awesome. Just just a hint at the beginning of the original theme, and oh, then the yeah. straight up uh, the 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 tag, the the stinger at the very end of the original theme, and it's like yes, gets you pumped to watch some Star Trek right there. Oh, it's it's so good. It's so good. Uh, moving on to my thoughts on Michael Burnham, and I touched a little bit upon this when we were talking about it, but you know, she did commit mutiny, even though no one else in, on the ship participated. But I think it was shocking for us as the audience because this goes against what we know of how a Starfleet officer should act. But I can forgive it because, like I said earlier, uh, she said that she did not feel like herself. So could that be due to the trauma of the spacewalk with the radiation? Could it be all of her conflicting emotions with encountering the Klingons? And like Sarek said that, you know, it's rare for someone to come face to face with their demons. And then, you know, the Klingons not being seen except for a few skirmishes here and there for a hundred years, you know, suddenly they're discovered in Federation space, even though it's the borders of Federation space, it's still the Federation. And she wanted to act quickly to resolve the conflict and to protect everyone. But we still don't know the whole story to this mystery because it really seems like Takumba set up this conflict in advance to rally his cause. And I'm wondering, did he somehow know about Burnham's past to set everything in motion? Did he position the, uh, the sarcophagus ship where the discovery might be able to, or not discover where the Shenzhou might be able to find it. So was he going to go forward with his plan, even without Burnham firing with the Shenzhou torpedoes? Was this war just super inevitable? And I think yes, but it's kind of pinning everything on Burnham. And I think there's more to this story that we just don't know yet. And I think Takumba, at least on some level, really set things up ahead of time. I, what do you guys I think? definitely agree with that. Uh, Takumba definitely had this planned. He had it planned down to a moment. Now, whether or not he knew about Burnham or not, that I don't think is necessary. Because ultimately it came down to, you know, like you said, or or like Burnham said in the show, Starfleet is known for their tech hygiene. They're known that if something breaks, they're going to send a ship to fix it. Now, they don't know what ship is going to get sent to fix it. I don't think Takuma could have planned it out that far in advance to know exactly, like, oh, this ship with a person whose parents were killed by Klingons is going to, like, I don't think he had that kind of intel. He just knew that a Federation ship was going to show up. 
And once it, a it was Federation, just kind of like the it was just kind of like the cherry on the Sunday that yeah, it, it, <laughs> just yeah, so just happened to of, be her. Exactly. And because I think it would have gone down essentially the same had any Starfleet ship shown up. I mean, imagine if sure. just any random Starfleet ship had shown up. They would have figured they, they would have been doing sensor scans. They would have found that there was something going on in the in the field and they would have sent something to to go and check it out. Now, evidently, they don't have probes in this timeline because they sent a, a person. One of my favorite things after this show came out, like I think a few hours after it was released, I don't know if you guys follow the Riker Googling account on Twitter. Yes, I do, yeah. <laughs> so we got Riker Googling, when to send a probe instead of a pro- when to shoot a probe instead of a person. Um, <laughs> That was that was brilliant. But, yeah, so they, they knew that something, they, they would have checked this out. Now, they may not have expected someone to physically go to the artifact. Um, sure. But they expected somebody to find it there and see it there and be there when they decided to reveal themselves, when they decided. Because imagine, okay, so imagine she hadn't gone on the spacewalk. Imagine just another ship. No, nobody has anything to do with Klingons. They're out there. They go, they're just out there hanging out, and they fix the relay. Maybe they don't even find the beacon. Maybe they're not even doing sensor scans. They're just like, hey, let's fix this relay and be on our way. Well, mm-hmm. they were still working on that relay when the first torchbearer was on the artifact set to light it up. So they yep. would have been there when the to beacon went To witness it. So yeah. no matter what, there would have been a Federation ship present when the beacon went off. Which, obviously, that Federation ship is going to be like, whoa, something's happening. People, I need some help. And boom, that's where you get the backup coming, which is what Takuma was counting on, was simply a bunch of Federation ships showing up. That's all he was counting on, because then he opened fire on them, which, of course, is going to start a conflict, and boom, you have a battle. So he right. didn't need it to be Burnham. That was just the fact that it was her and that she, her ingenuity and curiosity forced her to go check it out and end up. Like, the fact that she killed their torchbearer, that was just icing on his cake. It's like, hey, look, they, what, what do they do? They show up, and the first thing they do is they kill one of us. See what I'm saying? Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was perfect. That fit in to his his plan, but I don't think it was in his plan already. I think it would have still panned out pretty much the same had it been any Federation ship. But yeah, but now the Federation's just like, well, Burnham screwed up. It's all because of her. <laughs> yeah, they now they, they have a patsy that they can pin it right. on, and that can only lead to extended war because now they're like... You know, they're going to be constantly like, no, 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 it was just the actions of this rogue officer. And Klingons don't care. They're like, no, it was one of your people. Who cares? Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to resolve the conflict and, and figuring it out, they're trying to pass blame. That's not going to, you know, Klingons don't want to pass blame. You know, they're not going to respect you trying to pass blame. They want to fight. They want yep. you to take responsibility for your actions. That's what they want. So that's only setting it up for for longer war, basically. Now, I wanted to get into some of the references for for past Star Treks. First, there was the mention of uh, Gamma Hydra and an Andorian colony being established there. And, you know, you look on Memory Alpha and, of course, Gamma Hydra, it's right on the edge of Federation space near the Federation Klingon border. And here we go. And as soon as they said Andorian, I freaked out because I'm like, oh, my God, show us an Andorian on the show. (laughs) That would be awesome. Uh, so really like that reference. You know, it's easy to for, I would assume, any of the writers to go on to 
you know, memory alpha and see, hmm, what's near the Federation Klingon border <laughs> that we can use? So it, it just worked out. Also, one that I caught just by watching the show the first time when they mentioned the USS Taplana Half. This was named after the Vulcan matron, and also it was the ship, the Vulcan ship in First Contact that made First Contact. And we had in the original series, there was mentioned that there might be some ships that are all crewed by Vulcans. Mm -hmm. And in my head canon, this was an all Vulcan crew ship. Right. That makes sense. Unfortunately, it got destroyed. What are you going to do? But there you go. (laughs) I loved that Michael Burnham said phase cannons. Like there was mention of phase cannons. I love that. Which would make sense on the uh, Shenzhou if it's an earlier Federation ship. Uh, it would make sense that you know maybe they don't have full phasers. I, I know they say phasers later on, but I just like that they use the terminology of phase cannons. Mm-hmm. That that was nice, and the lateral vector transporters, which I really liked. So. To me, it was just all a really big callback to Enterprise and the uh, NX-class ships. Yeah, to, to your point with the phase cannons and phasers, the, the, the Shenzhou seems like a ship that has been retrofitted a lot since its mm-hmm. initial creation. So it makes sense that they would have installed some phaser banks on this ship, but maybe they didn't take out their phase cannons when they were installing it. Yeah, we'll give you a couple of phaser banks, but you're going to keep your phase cannons also. And, and also... That makes perfect sense when you're not in a time of war. Yes. The last thing you're going to retrofit are your weapons. You don't. You don't need to. You're like, hey, give you give you the new scientific equipment, give you the new spacesuits, give you the new sensors, and oh, uh, yeah, I guess we got a couple of phaser banks we can throw you away as well. But you know, that's really kind of secondary. Yeah, and really on a science vessel like the uh, Shenzhou, phase cannons might be good enough. And you just need them to help clear asteroids and crap. Like, that's really all you need. And and you're right. They, they're not in, at this period, they're not in a time of war. They're in a cold war, but they're not in an active war where weapons are their main priority and focus on development. Exactly, yeah. It's one of those things that I can totally understand them them having the old stuff still. And maybe maybe they've got the new stuff too, but to a very limited degree. And that's that's mm-hmm. why they, you know, like you said, they interchange. They they did say phasers at one point, but maybe that's the new thing. They're like, ah, we're not even sure if these things work. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's use the stuff that works first, and then, you know, if, yeah. we, if we have to, we'll use this new stuff that we're not quite sure of. Also, obviously, this show is going to be a lot about the Klingons. I mean, half this show is going to be Klingons uh, because we're also seeing it from their perspective. And there's Klingon main characters in the cast. So Klingons are a huge deal. First, the language. They actually have a Klingon language consultant on the show. That is someone's job. And they are... One of the most, I guess, respected Klingon speakers, you know, in the fandom or or something. I follow someone on Twitter who's actually a a Klingon singer. And I guess she's part of this group on, I don't know, some group on the Internet uh, of uh, Vulcan uh, or not Vulcan of Klingon speakers. Mm -hmm. And apparently there was talks like someone was that came onto their forums and was asking for specific words and they tied it back together that 
oh crap, that was someone asking for discovery. Oh, <laughs> so they they were getting they were getting consulting from the fans, but that same person who I saw on Facebook, their 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 review was that it was some of the best Klingon language like research, like everything they said was correct. And you can take out your Klingon dictionary and translate it for yourself to see how correct it is, because that's how far they went into making the Klingon language accurate for this show, which is amazing. That's awesome. But also with, with the Klingons, I'm so glad that we got to see the death ritual from next generation. Love us a good Klingon screaming. Yes. They also mentioned the 24 great houses and all of these house names that they mentioned we've seen before, Mokai, Dagor, Kor, these were all named and seen in past shows. And also the previous battle at uh, Donatu 5, which the Federation fought with the Klingons. So I'm glad that we're diving much more heavily into Klingon culture. I'm glad... I'm, I'm glad that we're seeing more of the Klingons and I love the fact, I know people don't like to read subtitles, especially when you have scenes as long as uh, some of Takumba's were, but man, for a Star Trek series to double down and say, yeah, we're going to use the native language of the aliens to tell their side of the story is freaking amazing. I think it's it one of the so much more powerful yeah. When he stopped and spoke English. Oh and my God. If he'd that been just opening, speaking English the entire oh, time, like that yeah. wouldn't have had the, the, the gunch, the gut punch that it did. Like when he just stops and he's looking dead in the camera and he says, oh. we come in peace. Oh, I'm like, holy crap. That's what we say all the time. <laughs> it was, it was so great. And then when he starts speaking English and you hear the phrase that was used in the, in the teaser trailer where he says, you know, we're seeking some, we've been seeking someone worthy of our attention. It was just, it was so great. And we only get that feeling because they're speaking in Klingon the whole time. So when they break to English, it's a very significant moment. Yeah, we know they're, it, it makes it obvious when they're like, okay, they're talking to each other, they're talking to themselves, you know, they're, they're speaking amongst themselves. And that's his whole point. I mean, when you're basing an entire movement on the fact that they want to keep their own purity of culture, and if they were just, inter, you know, back and forth between English and, you know, Klingon, you, you'd lose some of that. But the fact that he only speaks English when he's specifically talking to, Mm -hmm. the Federation or when he's telling his followers what the Federation is going to say. And then, of course, you know, his prophecy comes true because, of course, he's saying something that, you know, the Federation says. But he twists it in such a way that his oh. followers are just eating it up. I do want to point out with the with the Klingon discussion, one yeah. thing that I thought was really, really awesome. It was almost it was almost a throwaway line, but I just absolutely love it because I think it's so poignant not just in the show, but in life in general. When mm -hmm. Michael says to the Admiral, you know, be careful that you don't confuse race with culture. Yes. It, 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 it's almost one of those lines that, you know, you, you can almost skip over it. You can almost forget it. But it is so, so important. She's talking about here's their culture. Here's what they what what they believe and what they do. 
And he's dismissing it out of this idea of not wanting to be racist, essentially. He's like, you, you can't just paint a whole race with that brush. Uh, no, no, you can't. But we're not talking about a race. We're talking about a culture. And this particular group of people that we're seeing right now is definitely part of that culture. So I think it's a very important line that some may have missed or glossed over. And so I, I definitely wanted to just make sure it got highlighted. Yeah. And for me, that line was so poignant because, man, look at the times that we're living in now. And Star Trek is still doing what it does best. And it's reflecting the current times and the current period that it airs in. It's a mirror to what we are facing. It's an allegory to what we face day in and day out. And so, you know, the Klingons all about, oh, yeah, racial purity and blah, blah, blah. Gee, and we've got Nazis on Twitter. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like Star Trek is continuing to be relevant to what we're going through right now. And her line of not confusing race with culture was just perfect. Yep. So well done. And speaking of admirals, that guy <laughs> still continues the tradition that all Starfleet admirals are assholes. <laughs> Either that or crazy. All the next gen admirals were just nuttier than a squirrel turd. Like, they, oh my gosh. <laughs> They, they were nuts or pissed off, and um, I, I think I think the only good admiral out of Next Generation uh, was uh, was what's her face, uh, Nekachev. Nechev. Yeah, Nechev. Yeah, she was like she cross over the only DS9 good too? one out of all of them. <laughs> didn't didn't she cross over? She crossed over into DS Nine, didn't she? She appeared uh, as, as part of the uh, the Dominion uh, War saga, I, I believe. Yeah, I, I believe so. Her and then Admiral Ross, and then when Janeway became Admiral, those are your only good admirals. <laughs> and, and that's only because Janeway hadn't been Admiral long enough to go crazy yet, I think. Like, <laughs> and she only had, like, a minute on screen as Admiral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Give her, give her some time. When we get the next series that's set post-Voyager, we'll see crazy Admiral Janeway. I've, I've already seen it because I watch Orange is the New Black, so I know I've seen, I've seen a brief glimpse into crazy Admiral Janeway. Trust me. I don't know if you guys watch Orange is the New Black. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting I, I haven't, show. but yeah, uh, I, I know I need to. I heard people say that it's one weird and crazy holodeck uh program of, oh, Captain, God. of uh, Admiral Janeway. She's the captain I will always get behind, that's for sure. So, another interesting point to past tracks, the Klingons not being in contact with Starfleet, except for a few incidents for a hundred years, that time frame is so spot on because this takes place in 2256, guess when Enterprise ended. So, that means that the Klingons have been totally isolationist since their last scene on Enterprise in uh, Affliction. So I love that. I love that they use that like, hey, you know, something's going on with their foreheads, whatever. So they've been just isolated for 100 years. I think that was cool. That is cool, actually. I, I like that they're keeping with that continuity. It also gives a little bit of potential explanation as to the look. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, again, I'm okay with it, just looking at it and saying, hey, every time yeah. we get a new Star Trek series, we get a new looking Klingon. We get new yep. uniforms, we get different looking Klingons. I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But if you must yeah. 
look for an explanation, here's a possible option. Maybe after affliction, they spent so much time trying to figure out how do we get back? How do we get back? And maybe they tried some gene therapy that went overboard. Maybe what we're that seeing <laughs> in, in Discovery is uh, the over-treatment of the condition. And so that's mm -hmm. why they're so weird-looking. And it's not until next-gen time frame that they've gotten things kind of evened out <laughs> to where they've, they've, kind of, <laughs> they've kind of bottomed out, where the, this is where we're going to be for a while now. And um, and even more, it makes like Worf's line. It's like, oh, well, it's something we don't talk about. <laughs> it, it makes it all that much more uh, obvious. Like, why the hell are the Klingons going through all this crap? But, another thing to look at is all of the different houses we saw. Well, yeah, we only saw them in holographic form, but and we only saw looked... five of the twenty-four. Yeah, and but each of those that we saw did have a distinctly different look than yes. Takuma did. So we know that these houses have been warring for a while. We know that they've been separate, which means obviously they have not been intermixing as far as procreation goes. Mm -hmm. So maybe what we're seeing here is the effects of 100 years of, of inbreeding within the houses. So we've got all of these houses, which now look drastically different. Now maybe that they're, they're, now they're unified in this war against the Federation. They can open things up and start intermingling, and that's why we start getting a more unified look throughout the Klingon Empire by the time we get to next gen. I mean, again, if you care about these things, right. there are explanations that you could look to, to to go for it. As far as I'm concerned, I'm perfectly fine with the way they look because, again, hey, we've got better makeup now. We can make them look yes. cooler, so it's okay. And it's just one and of those things I accept with a new Star Trek series. And I'm totally with you, Eric. It's like, even from the original series to the the motion picture, boom, there's a different looking Klingon. Then we get to Next Generation, boom, different looking Klingons. Then, you know, 12 years go by and you got Enterprise going, oh, well, here's a fandom explanation and we totally give <laughs> into it. And now 12 years later, it's like, uh, you know what? It's We got better makeup. Here's new Klingons. Uh, I am perfectly acceptable with the behind the scenes. As a fan, I can compartmentalize and I know the differences in production. I, I don't care what they do to the look of the Klingons because we're getting an amazing kick-ass Klingon story out of this. I'm, I don't care what you do to them. They still have ridges on their head. They still wear armor. They have bat lefts. They eat live food. They have crazy ships. Awesome. That's all you need from the Klingons and that they're badass. <laughs> That's all I need. So I think the makeups look fantastic. You got, you know, Glenn Hetrick and uh, I forgot the other guy's name, but you know, they're from face off, which is a show that I love. And these are two veterans of costuming and makeup for multi-million dollar movies and TV shows. So the fact that they're working on Discovery is freaking awesome, and I love everything that they're doing with the Klingons. The armor looks absolutely stunning. It's great. Oh, yeah, it does. I, I love that it has like a kind of Elizabethan flair to it. At least at mm -hmm. least Takuvma's does. You know, the other the other houses look different. So it's you know, it's going to be different. It's I think it's great. Now, you talk about the better makeup and stuff. I I believe they said in I don't know if it was in After Trek or if I read it somewhere else that uh the actor who plays Takuvma said that it took about 3 hours yeah. to do the makeup. If I recall, 
Didn't Michael Dorn say it took like five or six hours to do his wharf makeup? I, funny enough, uh, speaking of uh, face off, I was showing my wife face off and, you know, she didn't know too much about Michael Westmore. So I'm like, oh, we should like watch something about Michael Westmore. And I came across this YouTube clip where he was applying Worf's makeup during the height of Next Generation. And originally they had it like it was a four hour, five hour process, like you were saying. But by the time of like the last seasons, they had got it down to about two hours. And that's just a forehead thing. Like these guys have full on like cows and, and mass and prosthetics and teeth and it's nuts. Yeah. That's my point is how far it's progressed. Like in the same amount of time or less, they can do a lot more. So why not do it? You know, (laughs) know, I'm, I'm okay with it. It's I'm, I'm totally fine with the different looks. You can explain it. There's, there's several different ways that you can explain it away if you absolutely must, or you can just accept that we're getting new stories and the Klingons look a little different, and that's okay. <laughs> and, and then one uh, last point to my uh, references to past tracks. Takumva named all four founding Federation members, humans, Vulcans, Tellarites, and Andorians. So Filthy Andorians Indians. were mentioned not once, but twice. <laughs> and I was like, like the yeah. Andorians. <laughs> I love the Andorians. He, he, Takuma really hated them. He, he, oh, he yeah. mentioned all of the others by name, but then he had the filthy Andorians. Like, I want to know the backstory there. I'm like, what? <laughs> show me on the doll, Takuma, where the Andorians touched you. And, and do we have to get the, um, you know, Andorian mining consortium on these guys? Like, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm really hoping that we see Andorians on Discovery. I think that would be Andorians freaking amazing. Not, if we don't get a Jeffrey Combs cameo, I'm suing somebody. Yeah. I yeah. don't care who. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing a strongly worded letter well, to somebody I somewhere. I think Shran could definitely still be alive uh, and be on the show. And yes. Oh, I'm, I'm all for that. I want old grizzled Tron. I, yes. Yes, I do. I do want him. And then... After Trek, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, Aaron Harberts said everything about the Romulans or whatever, but I just loved After Trek for all the behind the scenes stuff that we got. Michael Burnham's spacewalk, seeing them building the the Shenzhou bridge. Mm -hmm. We even get a really good shot and I paused it on the dedication plaque. And it carries the tradition of having all the names of the producers and people who worked on the show as the people who, quote-unquote, built the ship. And at the very end, you see Eugene Roddenberry, Roddenberry's son, Mm -hmm. and then the master of the shipyards, again, Gene Roddenberry at the end. So, amazing touch. Find out that it's a Walker-class ship, which we actually found out from uh, one of the Star Trek conventions because they had this pin or whatever. And then it was built at the San Francisco shipyards, which has been mentioned on uh, the show multiple times before. Like that's yeah, where the constitution class. Yeah. Cause yeah. I don't think they built the, uh, they didn't start making ships at the Utopia Planitia shipyard on Mars until well after TOS, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. But you know, there's, there's always different. Sh- I think they have probably several shipyards in yeah. the, uh, in the earth sector. Yeah. 
We see uh, most of the ships we love come from either San Francisco or Utopia Planitia, though. Exactly. So I, with, with everything with Discovery, my thoughts are that, look, they didn't do anything to me that super violated canon in any way. I think it's an amazing show to start out with. And even in a couple interviews, they said that these two episodes are like the pilot and then we get the third pilot with Discovery because that's where we see the ship in the third episode right. and we see the main cast. So it's a unique storytelling approach that I think we can only get because it's a streaming show. Exactly. And I love the storytelling that we're getting. We're, we have these mysteries, conflicts. Everything is not bunned up at the end of one episode like Next Generation. You know, things don't reset back to normal. There's consequences. And right now, I love all of it. And I really don't see any glaring huge issues that some of these online people, I just want to, like, <laughs> slap them and say, can you just calm down a bit and just watch the freaking show? But we'll get into that when your thoughts so eric <laughs> take it away all right real real quick before i get into my stuff i do want to add a couple of things with your behind the scenes information like i yeah. don't think it came from the after trek show but i think it was on twitter we saw that the books on the bookshelf yes. in uh captain georgia's ready room ha bear the titles of original series episodes which i think is awesome and, and she has a bottle of yes. uh, Chateau Picard uh, wine yes. back there somewhere as well. So a couple just little touches that are just, you know, the kind of thing that you're not even going to see. You only will get from behind the scenes stuff because there's no way you're right. going to see that while watching. But the detail, <laughs> the, the detail that they're willing to put into this kind of stuff, the, willing, the, the fact that the, somebody thought, hey, let's have her have a bottle of wine on the shelf. Hey, why not make it Chateau Picard? Boom. Like, that's just brilliant i love it so yeah. the, the detail that's going into this show for even stuff that may not be front and center visually it's mm -hmm. just the fact that they're there thinking about those things makes me believe that they're going to do right by the start by by the tr the trekkieverse or whatever you want to call it because they're, they're trying to make these little details so yeah, yeah I know the show is in good hands because it's very obvious to me that you have people involved in this show that are as passionate about Star Trek as we are. They are fans. And this finally feels like the culmination of getting fans to work on the show. The fact that they have a Klingon language consultant that is a fan. They've got Kristen Bayer, who has written all the Voyager novels and she was a fan and she's on the writing staff and you've got continuity people. And yet you still have people that are bringing fresh perspectives and story into this for right now. I, I love discovery and we're only two episodes in. Right. I cannot even imagine what the next 13 are going to be like. I I'm just on the edge of my seat waiting. I, I can't wait. But I do want to jump into to a few of my thoughts. And one of the big things, as you talked about, a lot of people, no other Star Trek show has ever been under this kind of social media scrutiny. I mean, because was MySpace even... even around when Enterprise came out? Oh, wait, I don't even Enterprise... know. No, MySpace and Facebook was. But Twitter? Twitter wasn't even around yeah. in Enterprise. So, so this is the first Star Trek 
where we're seeing this amount of social interaction and I hate it because fifty <laughs> percent of these people are a holes. And it's like, where the hell did you come from? But thanks for listening to the podcast. Yeah, except, oh, for, yeah. except for those listening. Thank you guys. You, very much. you, you know the the, the a holes that are listening to the podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. But get your head out of your. <laughs> So, so I, I went and I looked on Twitter and Facebook and I looked at some of what I was seeing pop up as the most common complaints to me. Like I saw a lot of little things here and there, but there were a few things that, that popped up as the most glaring, the ones that came up as the most complaints. And some of the chief complaints that I've heard so, so far, one thing, we, and we've already talked about this a little bit, but that it's too high tech, quote unquote, for a show that is set pre-TOS. And again, I, I go back to the fact that if we filmed the TOS set on a 4K camera, it would look like garbage. Nobody wants to see that. You know, you've got like three fans that would be out there being like, yes, it's perfect. And then everybody else would be like, why am I paying for this My garbage? God. <laughs> everybody else would be like, what? Yes, it's perfect. I love it. You, you, would, you would have. There would be three or four people who would be like, this is, this is amazing. I love it. Everybody else would be like, you want me to pay nine bucks a month for this? <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah. So for eight, for, I'm sorry, but for $8 million an episode, we're not getting the freaking sixties enterprise bridge. Get the hell over it. <laughs> I don't want dials and, and random switches that aren't attached to anything. I don't want cardboard they still, chairs. They still have buns. They still have a few buns here and there. So <laughs> I'm okay with that. For, so for the most part, for the most part, it, in so all but dumb. one specific instance, my general reaction to that is get over it. We're looking at 50, 60 years have gone by since that show. Obviously, the filmmaking technology has improved. It's going to look nicer. We're also we're looking towards the future. So they were looking at what they thought the future would look like then. Now we're looking at what the future would look like now. Obviously, some things have come to fruition. Some things haven't. So the look is going to change. It's fine. The one instance that I do want to point out, that the, the one thing that took me out of the moment for just a second, and anybody who's listened to any podcast I've ever been on about any kind of media knows that I love one thing above all else. Tell me a good story. The second thing I want is to tell it in a visually appealing way. If it's a visual media, if it's a movie, TV, you know, that type of thing, tell it in a visually appealing way. And thirdly, keep me in it. Keep me in the moment. Mm -hmm. As long as you keep me in the moment, I'm going to overlook so much in, in, the, in the case of flaws or story defects, plot holes, whatever. As long as I'm still in the moment, I'm not going to care. There was one thing that did briefly take me out of the moment to say, wait, wait a minute, what? And that was, as Aaron brought up earlier, the hollow communications. Mm. That is such a glaring example of, hey, wait a minute. This is technology that we have seen in Trek before, but it was like a brand new thing in Deep Space mm -hmm. Nine. <laughs> you know, we saw it from other species in Next Gen, but mm -hmm. the Federation using it on a regular basis, we didn't see that until Deep Space Nine. And it was a new thing then. It was like, oh, hey, we're just now starting this. So to have it be so prevalent, I mean, so much so that it's even in crew quarters, even if it's just command level crew, the fact that it's so prevalent is like, hey, wait a minute. And it's, it's just enough that it took me out of the story the first time through sure. just a little bit. So for that, I do have to say, huh, 
Still, get over it. Because, (laughs) again, as you pointed out, Aaron, it is reflecting the current technology. We are already, in 2017, looking towards that type of, uh, not necessarily holographic projection as such, but via augmented reality, we are looking at that type of projection. And there are some examples of that type of hollow projection already started. So, you know, the, the fact is, if they didn't include that, we would be looking at a show that's set in the future using old technology. So, mm-hmm. well, on the one hand, yeah, it did briefly, it was kind of a shock to the system because it was something I wasn't expecting from a pre-TOS show. But I was able to get over it, and I think everyone else should too. <laughs> <laughs> Now, there is one good thing that comes out of this, though, because this is, like I said, one of the chief complaints that I'm still hearing. People complaining that it's too high-tech for a show that's set pre-TOS. And I think this is a very, very good sign for the show now that it's out. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't know if you guys know, you guys aren't big Star Wars fans like I am, but when Episode One was first being released, when the trailers were coming out and the teasers were coming out, this was mm-hmm. one of the number one complaints then, too. People were like, oh, well, why does it look so futuristic if it's set before A New Hope and, and Empire and Return of the Jedi? Why is it so futuristic looking? The answer was the same. Filmmaking technology was better. Mm-hmm. But people were complaining about it, complaining about it, complaining about it until the movie came out. And then, you know what? People stopped complaining about that because the movie was bad and they had other things to complain about. They had Jar Jar Binks to complain about. They had horrible dialogue to complain about. They had midi freaking chlorians to complain about. (laughs) They they had so much more to complain about that they forgot about whether or not that, oh, this guy's lightsaber looks more high-tech than Luke's did. Nobody cared anymore because the movie sucked. So the fact that people are still complaining about that I think is a good sign because it means because the show is good. <laughs> yeah, because they're not complaining that Discovery sucks. Well, the hardcore haters there, are. There but are some that, who, you know, you knew from the beginning. Hate. Yeah, There are some people like I know. There's certain people like on my Facebook. There were like two people I knew. I'm like, okay, here's what's going to happen. If everybody else loves it, they're going to say they hate it. If everybody else hates it, they're going to say they love it because they just love to be contrarian to whatever the popular opinion is, no matter what that, no matter what it is. I guarantee that's the way it's going to be. And sure enough, that's what happened. Everybody else was like, hey, it's great. I love it. These people are like, I don't like it. And here's here's why. I'm like, I knew it. I I knew it. I knew that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So for the most part, that has still been one of the chief complaints that I've seen. And I think that's a great sign for the direction of the show. The fact that the storytelling has not been getting as many knocks. The, the, the characters have not been getting knocked down. There haven't been complaints about the show itself so much as just, oh, but it looks too high tech still. You'll get over that in a few episodes, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Now, the next thing, the next big thing that I've seen, and this is something oh, that God. I think we're going to be fighting the entire Forever. run of the series, quite honestly. Yeah. Because there are some people who are still going to complain about this no matter what. And that is the cost of the CBS All Access program or what they think of as a bait and switch. I saw someone on my timeline actually refer to it as a bait and switch. Because as they, did I. Because the they, same uh, person, I think. Probably, yeah. It was somebody who uh, had previously had a show here on the 4 Radio Network. So, yeah. I, And I don't have anything against this person. I'm, I'm not saying that they're wrong in their, in their opinion. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying I think they're looking at it the wrong way because CBS never said anything other than what happened. 
They never said they were going to broadcast the show. They said we're going to broadcast one episode. If you want the whole right. series, you have to have all access. They've always said that from the beginning. So there's no bait and switch here because there's no there's no switch. They said what's <laughs> happening. But there are still people who are like, oh, I only got one episode on the air. Now I have to buy this thing. Yes. That's yeah. exactly <laughs> what they were doing. They knew what they oh were my, doing. My God. Did the weekend of the premiere, the day of the premiere, there were still people that were like, wait, this is going to be on All Access? And we're only getting the first episode on CBS? I mean, I'm like, where the hell have you been for two years? This has always been from the beginning. It will be on CBS All Access. I've had All Access for a year in preparation of this show. <laughs> Granted, I found other things I could watch on it, and I also am a fan of Survivor, but it's like, you've had two years to know about this. There, How could you not, on the day of the premiere, I'm like, oh, I guess I have to pay six bucks a month? And to all the people complaining, what is six dollars to you? That's like one cup of coffee at Starbucks. Just don't go to Starbucks for a day, and you've got all access for a month. Come on! <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 one of my biggest things that I that just inflames me with this. It's like, yeah, when they first announced it was going to be on all access, yeah, I kind of was butt hurt for like a day, and then I got over <laughs> it because I'm like, yeah, it might not be so bad because I'm a cable cutter anyway. I'm a cord cutter, you know. I'm everything. I've got Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Crunchyroll, this, that, and the other. So me paying one more thing is not that big of a deal for me. Yeah, and exactly. I, like I said, for these people, I, yeah. I, I get it. I do. I, I understand, especially if you're still paying for cable or satellite. If you're still sure. paying for one of those services, I totally get it. Because right now, at, at my last count, I actually counted up the other day. And in fact, I added one the other day for my wife. So I'm now at 13 different streaming services between video, oh, wow. music, and uh, audio. You know, I've got Netflix, obviously, Hulu. I've got uh, CBS All Access. You know, I've got I've got uh, HBO. I've got Cinemax. I've got Stars. I've got um, MLB TV for my Diamondbacks baseball. And then I've got on the music side, I've got Spotify. Uh, I've got two Spotify accounts because I've got one for myself and one for my daughter. I've got uh, Pandora. I pay for the Pandora account so that I don't have to have ads and I can have unlimited skips. And then I have Audible for audiobooks and stuff too. So like with all these streaming services added up. It's still less than half of what I used to pay for cable. That's insane. <laughs> so it's like, guys, like seriously, they're 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 begging you to cut the cord here is what they're saying. They're saying, listen, we can get you all the good stuff and you don't have to pay for cable anymore. They're trying to cut out that middleman, that, that cable provider, that satellite provider from holding you ransom. I mean, just recently here locally here, I'm, I'm, I'm of course out in uh, adjective Toledo, Ohio. Just recently, one of our providers, I think it was DirecTV, had some uh, some dust up with the local CBS or ABC or Fox or somebody, I don't know. But So a lot of people were without one of their local channels on their cable yep. provider for a while because they were having one of these contract disputes that keep popping up. And guess what? You cable guys holding out for yep. these these local stations to, uh, to, to your way or the highway, it, you're only hurting yourself because every time you do that, more and more people are cutting that cord. More and more people are discovering yep. that sling exists. More and more people are discovering that they can figure out other ways to get the programming they want. So... The, the bottom line is, if you're in the United States and you mm. want to watch 
you want to watch Discovery. Your choices right now are to get CBS All Access or to pirate it. That's it. That, those are your choices. Those are the yep. only ways to get it. I personally hope you choose to go ahead and, and get CBS All Access because that money directly funds shows like Discovery and other shows. It doesn't just fund Discovery. It funds other original shows that will get on these services as well. So I personally hope that you choose to do that. I totally understand. I mean, as a former uh, person who used to pirate stuff all the time myself, I mm -hmm. used to do it. And, you know, I, I look back and I think, man, I really wasn't helping myself out there. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I thought, hey, I'm getting this stuff for free. Go me. But eh, not really. I mean, yeah, I was getting stuff for free, but I wasn't helping the process along. In fact, I was only hindering, <laughs> helping to hinder the process. So... Right. I, I get it. And, and there are people out there who literally can't afford even that. You know, people look at that and say, oh, a $6 cup of Starbucks coffee. That, that's great if you can afford a $6 cup of Starbucks coffee, but I can't. So I can't pay that for CBS either. I, I get it. There are those out there. Yeah. And and I am sorry for those, you know, again, wait until the end of the end of the run. Get it for one month or get it even for that seven day trial and just binge it and then cancel it. Like, I get it. Or, you know, find a friend who has it. Like, I've invited people yeah. over to my house to watch it. It's perfectly legal and acceptable for that to happen. In fact, actually, you know, my roommate does not have CBS All Access and he watched the first two episodes of Discovery with me today because I was watching it anyway. But, you know, like, if he'd have just said, hey, I want to watch Discovery, I'd be like, hey, well, hey, I've got CBS All Access on the TV in the living room. Go ahead and watch it. Whatever, you know, find a friend who's got it, find mm -hmm. somebody who's willing to go in with you and split it. You can have it on multiple devices, so it's not like you can't, like, hey, find, like, two or three people who are willing to, to split access with you, you know. There are ways to go about it legally that might be a little on the edge, middle, maybe a little gray area, but still far more legal and far more uh, productive in the long run than straight-up pirating it. Right, and, yeah. and you know what? This is probably going to be on Blu-ray. Oh, for sure. So wait till next September or something, and I'm sure season one will be on Blu-ray. Yeah, I'm I'm almost 100% positive we'll end up seeing it on Netflix also, even in the U.S. Like they're saying right now that it probably won't be, but I have a feeling like when season two is ready to come out or is started, we'll probably see season one on Netflix even in the U.S. Because Netflix yeah. is paying too much money for this show, mm -hmm. for them not to have access to it in one of their biggest markets. I have a feeling there's something built in for them to have access. It might be later, might have to wait a while, but I, I feel like it's going to be something that's going to show up there eventually. You know, in the in the early days of The Walking Dead, you know, I didn't have cable, and I used to pirate that show, The Walking Dead, and then, you know, I kind of fell out of it for a couple seasons, and then, oh, look, it's on Netflix now. I don't have to go through the trouble of pirating it. I can just wait until right before the next season starts. They put it on Netflix. And you know what? Just this past week, I'm all caught up on The Walking Dead now. I'm ready for season eight. Like, and that's the power of binging, of, of, of streaming. And mm -hmm. I love it. I'm never going back to cable, ever. Yeah. And, and I know people... for some people that's not an option. I didn't mean to come off as kind of elitist by saying, oh, it's just like a $6 cup of coffee. I, I, I'm sorry, but how I feel, it's like, okay, so what? You can't afford it. But do you have to go on the internet and just slam the company and everyone who does it just because you can't have it right now? Come on. Yeah, and, and the fact is, like I said, even if if you can afford to pirate it, that means that you're paying somebody for internet access. 
Yeah. So the <laughs> fact is, you're you're already paying money for it one way or the other. It's it, it's it's kind of hard for me to believe that you seriously can't afford the extra six bucks. But at the same time, I do get it. I've been in those situations where I've had to make the choice of of you know what can I pay this month, what can I not? I you know I totally get that. So I'm not trying to yeah. to tell anybody that oh I know that you have this money when they might not. But sure. there are other options because pirating it does not help anybody in the long. You know, no. I used to think it was a quote unquote victimless crime, but looking back and I and I think about the way things are going, especially now, like like I said, we are literally directly paying for our content now. We're not yes. paying advert you know, we're, we're no longer relying on advertisers to pay companies to make products they think we'll like. We're able to directly pay companies for products we like and we're getting better products for it. That's the end result. We are getting better products. We are getting Westworlds. We are getting Game of Thrones. We are getting Discovery. We are getting better products. It's a great products. time. It's a great time to be a sci-fi fan, for sure. Sci-fi fan, uh, just a television fan, just a yeah. storytelling fan. Like, you know, again, I, I always hit this point, and I know people are probably sick of any show I've ever been on saying this, but... <laughs> I love to be told a good story. I don't care if it's sci-fi. I don't care if it's Western. I don't care if it's fantasy. I don't care if it's true crime. I don't care if it's police procedural. Tell me a good story, and I'll be invested. And so far, as of right now, Discovery seems well on its way to doing that. Even in these first two episodes, which I know were a pilot, but I love the way they, they went about it. And they, they talked about it in After Trek a little bit, about how they thought about just jumping right into the Discovery storyline and telling mm -hmm. us this whole, you know, basically everything that happened in these two episodes via flashbacks. And I'm so glad they didn't do that. I'm so glad they chose, no, you know what? We'll use these two episodes to, to set up this character. Yeah. And then we can work on setting up the rest of the characters. I mean, you know, if you look back at previous tracks, I mean, I love Next Generation. Love, love, oh, yeah. love, love Next Generation. But I will never defend Encounter at Farpoint as a good piece of television. <laughs> it just wasn't. I, but it was a pilot. It was yeah. it was them trying to introduce like twelve characters in two hours, and it's just that's not the way you should do it. And yeah, it's like with oh hey, it's uh it's Mr. Data, and oh look, it's my first officer Riker, and oh hey, there's Troy. Like yeah, it's clunky. Yeah, the way they're trying to make. You know, and, and when you're doing an episodic arc like that, where each episode is an individual story, you do have to establish the characters ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But when you do it as an arc, like we're seeing basically from, from, from Deep Space Nine Season 2 on, basically Star Trek kind of went to that arc type where, where they kind of went with the, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell you a story. It might take us a few episodes. It might take us a season. Who knows? But we're going to tell you a story. And along the way... You're going to learn about the characters. They took it. They, they went and they said, you know, what do people love? People love novels. People read novels. People read books mm -hmm. that take eight, nine, ten hours to read if you read it straight through, maybe longer. Why do they love them? How do they tell the story? Well, open up a novel and you're not going to find chapter one, person A, chapter two, person B, <laughs> chapter three, person C. And then by the time you get to chapter seven, now we're going to start the story. No, that's not how books work. If they did, nobody <laughs> would read them. You start out jumping into the story, and then you learn the characters along the way. And that's how Star Trek learned to tell a story, you know, like I said, starting around season two of Deep Space Nine and continuing on. 
And I think this is no different. They're jumping in. They're telling us a story. This entire season is going to tell us a story. And so far, we've really only learned about one character really deeply. We've learned mm-hmm. a little bit about a couple of side characters. But deeply, we've really only, you know, this these first two episodes were the Michael Burnham show. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. But uh, hopefully we'll get into that some more when we talk about the next uh, the next episode and the episode after that. And hopefully we'll hopefully my uh, theory about how this plays out will will bear fruit. <laughs> <laughs> but the next, I do want to talk about the next big 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 complaint that I see, and I see this every single time there's ever a reboot or oh, a sequel God. or a prequel or anything that uses any characters from any existing fandom. We get people who are saying, it's not Trek enough for me, or it's not my Trek, or it's ruining my childhood. That's that last one, especially. <laughs> I love the voices you two are doing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the crazy voices. I'm a fan of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when, when you do that one, please tell me you're pushing your glasses up on your nose. You have to. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not wearing glasses, you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we get these people who are like, oh, that's not my yeah. track. It's ruining my childhood. Again, we hear this every time there's a new TV show, yes. a new movie, a new book, a new anything that uses existing characters from a fan. I already went through this this year with Power Rangers yeah, movie. Exactly. You get this. <laughs> now, now tell me, when they released that new Power Rangers movie, yeah. did the existence of that movie somehow delete the existence of all the previous shows that you had ever watched? No, it didn't. Really? That's shocking because the way people on the internet were talking, you'd think that's what was happening. It's it, the, the people on the internet think that this thing comes out and somehow temporally erases like a Krenum warship. Oh, huh, Star Trek. Oh, Trigger. nice reference. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it's. No, seriously, they think that when one of these things happen, like a new Star Trek or a new Power Rangers, it somehow just erases their childhood and their past shows from uh, from history. Yeah. And it's not. You can just turn off Discovery, never watch Discovery, and go play with all the other Star Treks that are on Netflix. Like... I'm Go back to your in little the middle of a rewatch of Deep Space Nine, and somehow all of the episodes are exactly the same as they used to be, even though Discovery has started. I'm and you know shocking, what? Right? I kind of been rewatching some Enterprise. I know that's not your guys's favorite, but I've been rewatching it because I'm in that prequel mood. There you go. Well, I just <laughs> well, I, I just I finished it a TNG rewatch, so I've moved on to Deep Space Nine. I'll probably do Voyager. Don't know if I'll do Enterprise again. That's, that's a tough one, but I might. I might. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, you know, when these people say, you know, I heard it with, with this new Ghostbusters movie came out, and it was like it's ruining my childhood. Okay, first of all, the first Ghostbusters movie still exists, and if anything, the second one did that far worse than this movie ever could. But third of Man, all, I like the second. One. I did like the second one. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just Eric's too old. That's why. But the the fact of the matter is, like, I watched the new yeah. Ghostbusters movie. I didn't really enjoy it. I thought that it wasn't very funny. I thought they stepped on their jokes. That was the big thing mm-hmm. that bugged me. It's like they told the joke, and it's like, okay, that's kind of funny. And then they kept going to explain the joke. I'm like, no, no, I got it. I got it already. You don't have to keep. <laughs> why are you still? Why are you still telling? Me? Oh, you've killed it now. That was my problem with it. I didn't give a crap that they were women. That did not even phase me in this. Like, that wasn't my issue. My issue was that they, I, I felt they stepped on the jokes. I think the first movies just did a better job. 
But the fact is, I can still go back and watch Ghostbusters anytime I want to. It's still there. The same thing with Trek. If TOS is your bag, go back and watch TOS anytime you want to. You can do it on CBS All Access. If you want to watch TNG. But I wouldn't. Well, <laughs> not, on the, not on the phone app, that's for sure. Um, I'm really hoping they update their stuff with the... That's the one thing. is like I, I like to use Netflix to watch my Star Trek instead of CBS All Access because they've got the remastered, whereas CBS right. has like the original stuff. Um, I've been using CBS simply because, A, I wanted to test it out, and then B, because a lot of times what happens is when I'm, when I'm watching my, when I'm rewatching through Star Trek, it's a lot of times while I'm at work. And so, you know, my job requires me, my focus is actually on my screens in front of me. And I'm essentially just listening to mm-hmm. the Star Trek because I've, you know, that's why I watch stuff that I've seen already, because that way I don't have to be focused on the screen. It doesn't take me away from my actual work. I can do my work while listening to Star Trek. And what happens is, you know, our Netflix account, only two devices can be active at a time and so a lot of times while i'm at work i work a night shift so my wife will be watching something on netflix in our room and my daughter will be watching something on netflix down in the living room and so that means i can't use the netflix on my phone so i have to find an alternative source and it's like hey well guess what all the star treks are on cbs all access too so i can just jump on there and watch it that way and no one's watching that <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, it works out. I, I've been watching it that way just because, you know, it's been it's been convenient for me. But like I said, it's still there. You know, it's not like they, yeah. hey, we're going to put out this show. And at the same time, we're going to actually erase from existence all of these <laughs> other things. So you can never watch them again. You have to just trust your memory on them. And we're going to throw stuff at you that's going to ruin that memory. No, it, that's not the way it works. So if you don't want no. to watch Discovery, don't. That's fine. Whatever. If you think that it's not Trek enough, that's an issue that I think only individuals <laughs> can look at. <laughs> the next thing I'm going to get into is why I think you're wrong, if that's what you think. But we'll, we'll get into that. But like I said, it doesn't ruin your childhood. It doesn't ruin any previous Trek because those no. all still exist. You can watch them anytime you want. Then the next, the last two big complaints that I've seen. One is I've seen people actually post this. I've seen people post it's boring. And to them, I, the only thing I can say is, wow. what show were you watching? I was watching a show with freaking Battle with the Klingons and Spacewalks. And, like, this was an awesome show. Even if I knew nothing about Star Trek, it would be an awesome show. It, full, it was action-packed. It had adventure. It had excitement. It had cool characters. It was well done visually. I don't understand how you could be bored by this show. I just don't get it. That, that complaint right there, I just yep. I can't wrap my brain around. And then the one that really, really, really bugs me. This one, just it just grates on me because it, I, have to, I have to wonder where they've been for the past 60 years. <laughs> and that's the one that, where they claim that it's too God. diverse or too politically correct. Oh, what? I, I saw you, some crap Have you today. ever seen Star Trek before, ever? <laughs> Any yeah. iteration of Star Trek before in your life? Dude, I've seen so much like, oh man, it's really pushing that leftist SWJ agenda and that feminist agenda. Like, where the hell have you been? Like, Star Trek's always been progressive and has definitely leaned towards the left. Like, what the hell are you watching? You, you, You have a television series, broadcast television series in the 60s that dared to put an Asian and a Russian on the same place at the same time together in positions of power. 
And not only that, you also had a woman there who was black at the same time, who had authority, who had input in what was going on. And you're telling me that it's too diverse now? The fuck are you thinking? I don't, I don't get it. It just, it blows my mind that people would think that that's a problem, first of all. And yeah. that it's anything other than what Star Trek has always done. I mean, come on. That is what Star Trek has always been about. And, and uh, if if that's not your thing, then guess what? Star Trek just isn't for you. I, I commented on yeah. that. Somebody posted. I mean, I'm on yeah. one of these Facebook groups for Discovery, and somebody had posted that. Oh, for sure. You know, I'm not going to watch this because it's... or No, what they had posted was... Um, because the, this whole thing with the NFL and the uh, the taking of the knee oh, during the anthem, God. which has become so much, the 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 what it has become is nothing. It's not even related to what it was originally, which drives me nuts. But right, the point to the story is the the cast of Discovery took a picture of themselves taking a knee and had posted it on Twitter. Oh boy, did people, that set the flame on fire! Oh I saw gosh. if. All you have to do to get pissed off is go to the Star Trek official Discovery Facebook page and look at the comments for any post. And you'll see every single point that Eric is making right now. It's it's insane. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. so because the cast on their own time chose to make this political point that they happen to agree with, you're going to claim now that the show is too politically correct. Now, first of all, A, you need to figure out how to separate actors from the parts they play. B, again, have you ever seen an episode of Star Trek in your life? (laughs) Like, do you not understand what Star Trek is about? Like, Gene Roddenberry had this vision. He was literally visionary in his time Mm -hmm. to have this vision of the future where race didn't matter, where sex didn't matter, where every person, whether they be human or not, was given the opportunity to be treated equally, to show what they were worth based on their contribution, not based on whatever your first impression of them was, whether it be what color they were, what type of antenna, or how many antenna they had. Didn't matter. (laughs) That was the whole point of of what Gene was trying to get across. And the fact that people are, are complaining about that now, it's like... You guys really don't get it. And I had commented on one of these posts because I normally I skip over them and just be like, I'm not going to feed the troll. I'm not going to feed the troll. And somebody had posted about that. And I, I was one of the I think I was one of the first people to comment. I don't know, because it was a fairly fresh post. And I post all I do is I said, you know what? Maybe Star Trek isn't for you. That's all I said, because, like, that's all I can think at this point is that, you know, maybe Star Trek just isn't for you. Because if that's what you think, if you think that this is too diverse, there's only been one example of of a piece of media that I've seen where I felt that they tried to do the diversity thing too much as far as, like, it felt like they were hitting a checklist, and it didn't it didn't feel natural it felt like they were literally going through a checklist and seeing how many checkboxes they could check mm-hmm. and that was if you uh for anybody who's interested if you like michael crichton's work i do a podcast called the crichton cast with my co-host stephen maston and we went over the andromeda stream which is a novel by michael crichton it was also turned into a movie and a mini series it was a two part mini series in the early 2000s in that mm-hmm. mini series they went through the diversity checklist I mean, so much so that they changed characters from, you know, it was a white guy in the original book, and they changed it to a black woman. And then another character, they made gay. 
just because. Like, literally throwaway line in there is no love story in the book or movie whatsoever because Michael Crichton doesn't write, he didn't, sorry, he didn't write good love scenes. We, mm-hmm. we discovered that when we reread Disclosure. Oh my goodness, Michael Crichton was not good at love scenes. So he didn't write them usually. They weren't in his books. If you go and read a Michael Crichton novel, there's, there's not really a love story in there because he didn't write them well. That's fine. He wrote everything else well. But in this Andromeda Strain uh, TV series, they basically have this throwaway line where this one army guy is talking to this other character and it's literally like a, it has nothing to do with anything in the storyline, but they throw in a, a don't ask, don't tell joke, basically. And it's like, oh, okay, so he's gay. I get it. So there's another checkbox on your list. You know, that was literally it. And it just felt so forced and unnatural that it was noticeable. I've never gotten that from a single thing of Star Trek. I've never mm-hmm. felt like it was forced or unnatural. It always felt like it was, that's just the way it is. Black guy commanding the space station? Yeah, why not? Female of another species is, is his first officer? Yeah, so? <laughs> exactly. Like, like, well, yeah, the space station is, is, is orbiting her planet. Why wouldn't she be there? Like, I don't get it. What's the problem? Female captain of the ship? Yeah, and why? <laughs> Why would that be an issue? It's never felt forced in Star Trek, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel forced now. Like people are, are that's what people I think are trying to to say, and it doesn't. It does not feel forced. I don't feel that these characters are shoehorned into their positions to check off a, a list, uh, you know, for diversity's sake. I feel like these characters are well written. I feel like they're specifically written to to flow together, and uh, I think they're doing a damn good job so far. So that argument, I just don't get it. I, I don't get it either. It's and really, it's the people making these comments like oh, it's all social justice warrior. It's like wow. Then you're someone I don't even want to look at their opinion of. You know what I mean? It's well, like I, I love that the term of social justice warrior. Ha- they they think it's an insult, and I'm like, well, so you're saying that someone who fights for social justice is a bad thing. I- but but, yeah, uh, but I want I want social justice like that's a that's thing what that Star I want. Star Trek is about. <laughs> that's a thing that I would like to have. <laughs> so why would fighting for it be a bad thing? Like I don't get how that somehow is an insult. Like it, it, it boggles my mind that there are people out there who honestly believe that somehow, some way, they're going to hang on to that little bit of superiority that they've managed to keep based on their skin color or their gender, and they're so, so terrified of it possibly going away. And mm-hmm. that's that's what it comes down to. And it's not even about equality. I think a lot of these people, they can only imagine a full reversal. They're not mm-hmm. imagining equality. They're suddenly imagining a world where basically somebody else has the power that they've always had over them. And that's what scares them so much. And I don't see that. I see equality as a good thing because equality, you know? <laughs> so I, I I don't want to delve too much into that. We've kind of gotten off track a little bit. But then again, no, we haven't. Because again, this is what Star Trek has always been about, is showcasing that, being a mirror into the current society and... Current society needs a mirror to look into right now because there is some bad stuff going on that someone mm-hmm. needs to look at and be like, hey, guys, what? Seriously. But, uh, yeah, so so those are the chief complaints that I've seen and my responses to them. Before, we, before I move on from my thoughts, I do want to touch on just a couple of things, specifically the elements 
of classic quote-unquote Trek that we've seen from Discovery and the elements we've seen from Discovery that are definitely unique to Discovery, things that we have not mm. yet seen on a Star Trek show before. Uh, first of all, we've got a lot of examples that, Eric, you already listed, all the tie-ins back to original series and Enterprise and stuff like that. Tons of, tons of stuff there as far as little things to tie things in. But then we also have the, the more broad, you know, the fact that they're exploring. You know, they're talking about being on the edge of Federation space. And while they weren't specifically on an exploration mission, they were on a repair mission in this particular case, mm-hmm. it's very obvious that their mission is exploration, which has always been a theme of Star Trek. Then we have that that classic line. We have uh, the captain saying, the Federation doesn't fire first. Despite how badly Michael is trying to convince her that this is the right course of action, she's like, no, the Federation doesn't fire first. Straight up, not going to happen. You are going to have to knock me out and take control of the ship in order for that to, oh, wait. Seriously, (laughs) that's that's what it's going to take for this to happen. And then you've got the diverse crew working together. Mm-hmm. That's another staple of Star Trek. You've got people of different races, different species, different nationalities, different origin stories, all of this stuff, but they're working together for the common goal. That is Trek right there. And then, of course, I would be remiss to not mention instantly exploding con panels. I absolutely <laughs> love the fact that the con panel on the Shenzhou exploded at the first hit from that Klingon fighter. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, oh my gosh, this is Trek. This is Star Trek right here. Did you see that that panel explode? Like, what do they build those things out of? <laughs> well, I've seen a couple videos where someone was referencing that if you look at sometimes when it happened on Voyager, like the like the walls are full of rocks. And whenever a comp panel explodes, it's just like big foam rocks. <laughs> Why Why do they build ships like this? They should know by now. It really, I don't know if you guys, if either of you guys have read uh, John Scalzi's book, Red Shirts. They touch on that a little bit in that book. That I highly recommend that book to anyone who's a Trek fan because it is a very, very good humorous take on the Star Trek universe. It's a very fun novel. It tells its own story while also poking fun at the Star Trek universe in a very, very uh, respectful and from an, from an obvious fan perspective's way. It's not poking fun. It's, it's not somebody outside saying, I don't like Star Trek, so I'm going to make fun of it. It's an obvious fan of Trek poking fun at the little holes here and there. And that's one of the things that's brought up is the exploding con panels everywhere. <laughs> if you guys haven't I, read I'll that book, I definitely out. recommend it. It's, it's a great story. It's a great story. Cool. In fact, it, you know, it's honestly one of the, like, you read the book and you're like, that would have made a great episode of Trek. Like, that would, like, you could turn this book into a two-part Trek episode easily. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, some things that I thought were very unique to Discovery that we haven't seen necessarily in previous Trek. Obviously, the visuals. We've got, yeah. this is, it's visually stunning. We've got these cinematic effects because, guess what? They've got a budget. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, I don't have a problem with this because money i understand we've got better technology and they've got more money to work with so yeah Mm -hmm. we're gonna it's gonna look more like a movie and i'm okay with that because i've got a a fancy hd tv that i'm watching this on i want all the fanciest graphics you can give me i want everything to look beautiful and crisp and clean and they're doing a fantastic job with it so that's something that we have not yet seen I mean, even at the latest, even when you go into the late seasons of DS9 and Enterprise, they still mm-hmm. didn't have the kind of budget that Discovery has. 
So they did they did great with what they had. I'm not dissing them for their effects. Especially DS9, I thought, did fantastic with the budget they had. And the later seasons of, of Next Gen, even. They knew how to stretch a buck, for sure. But now, they don't have to. They can straight up do whatever they want to do. And it's beautiful. And it, it looks good. Yeah, <laughs> That's it, the main thing. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's the kind of trek you dream about. So, no complaints there. I think it's a fantastic thing. But it is definitely something that's unique to this format. And again, I think that comes back to the fact that we're on a streaming format. We're on a mm-hmm. format where the fans are directly paying for the product instead of having this omnipresent advertiser deciding what's best. We've got fans saying, here's some money, make me a show. Mm -hmm. And this is what we get for it, and I like it. We've got another thing that I think is fairly unique to Discovery. We've seen it a little bit. Aaron, you you brought this up a little bit uh, with Tom Paris, but we've never seen it to this degree, I don't think, and that is consequences. Actual, real consequences for actions that happen on board a starship. How many times have we seen somebody be insubordinate, damn near close to mutinous, without, by the time the episode ends, uh, everything's wrapped up. I think the worst thing we ever saw in Next Gen was Worf one time got an official reprimand put on his record. And then Picard (laughs) said, good work. Like, you know, it's still like, yeah, you got the official (laughs) reprimand, but you still got the stamp of approval from the captain. No, in this case, you've got a court-martial. You've got a life sentence imprisonment. Like, yeah, we know something Mm -hmm. happens to get her out, you know, from the trailers for the rest of the episodes. But the fact of the matter is we're seeing for what I think is the first time in Star Trek real honest-to-God consequences for actions that are of insubordination. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times have we seen people get away with stuff because it turned out in the end to be the right thing? Oh, whatever. But we never really saw those those actual consequences. Cisco yelled at people a couple of times. Like, he was a little more stern, I think, than than Picard. Picard would be like, yeah, 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 you shouldn't have done this, but good job. <laughs> Cisco was more, Cisco rah, 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 also, you shouldn't have done this. Bye. He also, like, <laughs> you know, knocked Garrick on his ass. Well, Garrick um, deserved to be knocked on his ass. I mean, come on. <laughs> Garrick, man. It's true, though. I love to hate Garrick, man. Garrick is one of those he, guys. Like, he is oh. incapable of telling the truth. Like, seriously. Like, it doesn't matter if... Like, there are so many situations that Garrick was in that could have been so much more quickly solved by him just telling the truth. But he chose to lie instead. But, <laughs> so but like, you know what? One of my favorite characters. Oh, absolutely. Seriously. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially him and him and Bashir. The interaction between oh. him and Bashir. Him him just twisting Bashir around. Like he, he found Bashir. He's like, Oh, this is a guy who likes a mystery. I'm gonna mess with this guy. <laughs> watch this. <laughs> just watch this. But yeah, we've never really seen this type of, of consequence happen. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting, you know, obviously, like I said, with the trailers, we see that she gets out of prison, she's on the discovery, but we do also see from the trailers and from the little snippet we got in After Trek that she's still an outcast. You know, people do not like her, even people who used to work with her. You know, we see Saru talk to her and be like, yeah, you're you're good at what you do, but you're also dangerous as so, like, stay away from me. <laughs> <laughs> so we see that there are actual consequences to people's actions in Discovery mm-hmm. that we I don't think we've seen in previous Treks. And then one other thing that I think was really, really, really cool there was just a small little thing that could almost be forgotten, but there was especially one scene after the sarcophagus ship had decloaked where you see the spatial relationship between the two ships and you see that they're not perfectly parallel head on. 
Because mm-hmm. why would they be? They're in space. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever for these two ships to be on the same plane, on the same angle. You look at them and they're like one of, you know, the, the sarcophagus ship is on like this weird little axis off to the left over here. And then the Shenzhou is like kind of tilted to the right and down a little bit. And you look at it and it looks odd at first, but then you think about it. It's space. Why would they be pointed the same direction all the time, every time? Now, it makes sense that the other Klingon ships and the other Federation ships, when they show up, are on the same spatial plane as the other Klingon ships and the other Federation ships because it makes sense that, you know, across Mm -hmm. the Federation or across the Klingon (laughs) Empire, they would have this, like, okay, here's your basic telemetry that you use. And unless you have to shift for some reason or another, here's what we use when we're traveling. So when other ships from that same faction show up, yeah, they're going to be kind of similar. But the fact that they have these two ships at just such odd angles, I looked at it and I said, yes, that's what it would be like if ships showed up in space. They wouldn't be perfectly head-on, perfectly parallel on the same plane as each other. Why would they be? Wonderful and, little tiny detail, but I loved it. And that was uh, such a great moment, the example that when the Europa showed up, and they're all like, oh, crap, what's going on? And then they have to, you know, shift the visual sensors and, oh, it's the Europa. They're above us with a tractor beam. That's awesome. It was, that was such a great uh, little thing about the orientation of of the ships. Yeah, because by the time that, like, when all the other ships showed up, they were on the same general plane Mm -hmm. orientation as the Shenzhou, which made sense because they're all Federation. But then by the time the Europa showed up, the battle had begun. And so everybody was all over the place. So, of course, they're not going to be on the same spatial plane as anybody. <laughs> they're just showing up. They're just going to be there. I thought that was a fantastic. It's one of those little tiny details that have always mm-hmm. that have always bugged me about almost every space show that's ever existed. They always <laughs> have these ships showing up on the same plane, pointed right at each other head on, as if that's just the way you show up in space. And I'm like, no, space is 3D, guys. There's no orientation to be locked. There's no reason why you wouldn't appear upside down to the ship you stumble across in space and they would appear upside down to you. There's there's no reason for them to be on the same spatial plane as you. None at all. So I dug that a lot. Cool. Uh, jumping in a, a couple of we we talked about uh michael burnham in in detail obviously yeah. because that was the first two episodes were definitely about her i mean that, it was definitely setting her up and her relationship with uh the captain and with the with uh Sarek and with the federation in general like it was basically setting her up and that's fine but there are a couple other characters that I really hope they delve deep more deeper into and i know at least one of them they are the other one i'm not so sure but i'm hoping but one of my favorite characters out of these first two episodes is definitely Saru. Oh, I freaking yeah. love this guy. And so much so because he he reminds me of myself in high school. He's <laughs> lanky. He's funny looking. Smart. Kind of snarky. Really cautious. Kind of scared of everything. It's totally <laughs> me in high school. <laughs> You know, I don't claim to be as smart as he is, but, but you know, still, like, I'm like, dude, totally, that's me in high school. Like, uh, I, I'm all about this guy right now. So I'm glad that he's uh, in future episodes, that he's a major character, because I, I want to get to know him a lot better. Funny enough, I just immortalized him in Star Trek Timeline, so I got him to level 100, so... Nice. For anyone oh, wow. playing, yeah. So for anyone playing that game, they've added discovery things into it. So sweet. Yeah, it's part of the canon. Damn it, yet, but... it's it's a lot of fun. 
And the other character I need to know more about is that helmet-wearing, death-punk-looking bridge officer. What is her deal? Like, is that just, like, is there a person who's assigned to that post who has to wear that helmet all the time? Or is she an alien who has to wear that helmet to survive in Class M atmosphere? Like, what's, like, you saw, like, she had the wires on her fingers, too, like, going on. But I don't think it's an android, because... I hope it's not an android, because if she's an android, and then we are like, oh, Data's well, so unique. Well, how is he so unique if we had one already? But Well, uh, spoiler alert, you're going to be pissed off at the Discovery, because Lorca has a robotic assistant. Well, r- robotic assistant is different than a sentient android. So we'll, uh, well it kind of looks like an android, but... Uh, <laughs> but we have seen... But we have seen the original series did have androids and robots. They had robots. a ton of androids. No, in, yeah, in androids there. are fine. It's the sentient androids that I'm that I'm concerned with. But yeah, yeah, they they can't be sentient. Yeah, because yeah. that's data. Yeah, exactly. But uh, with this with this character, well, data was a sentient android made by a human. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. That's it. He was a sentient android made by a human. Because remember that episode? Uh, I I don't remember the name of it. Maybe it's Mud's Women uh, with Harry Mud and all those androids. They they were sentient androids running themselves. Oh, that was that's that was true. a race of of androids though. Yeah, that was. But they weren't in Starfleet. I'm talking about no. like actively <laughs> Starfleet officers. Like I, okay. I would fully accept that there are other sentient androids in existence in the universe. Like that, that part okay. doesn't necessarily bother me. But serving aboard a Starfleet vessel and nobody mentions that when uh, uh, you know Data comes along. Like, oh hey, so you're kind of like this? No. Like nobody mentions that. No, no, no. I don't like that. But from what I, I don't. I haven't heard anything else about this particular crew member. But like the helmet lit up with the red alert, and she's got like the wires on her fingers, like the whole tactical thing going on. And I'm like, I want to know more about her story. Like, is that just? Does anybody working that station have to wear that helmet, <laughs> or is that a, a a a race that has to wear that to to live in you know regular in what we consider regular atmosphere? You know. And she got hurt. She had to be taken to sick bay. There, there was people that were like carrying her away. Yeah. So yeah, it's obviously you know some sort of life form under there. But what is it? Like I want to know. I'm I'm so <laughs> curious about this. So that's so far. I'm like I'm really hoping that uh, she shows back up or we find out more about her in one way or another. Yeah, I, I'm down. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so uh... I want to know about everyone. <laughs> At this that point, is true. I'm I mean, like, I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that the rest of the people. I'm like, ah, forget them. But specifically, <laughs> oh, those two were the ones that jumped out at me as uh, people I want to oh. know more about. I, I forgot to mention my my favorite character of the the pilot, and it's because there was a Power Ranger actor, and he was on the bridge of the Shenzhou. The guy who took over Ops. Uh, he's an actor by the name of Chris Violet. He was on my favorite Power Rangers season of all time, Power Rangers SPD. And he played the character, it was like uh, Britt uh, Wheaton. And he was in the credits, and there was a very few couple really good shots of him in the show. And when I found out as that actor, I was like, oh my god! And that was really exciting to me, because I'm like, my fandoms are crossing the streams again, (laughs) and it's great! Nice. (laughs) So yeah, that's that was my little freak out during the premiere too. So hopefully he gets to come back. That would be awesome. 
Yeah. Well, I didn't see him dead or anything on the yeah. show. So, so he he wasn't the one sucked out into space. No. Or blown out into space. No, he wasn't. Good. He was he was behind Captain Giorgio when that when she was looking out at that thing that blew up. He was in the background, so he's oh, fine. Okay. He's oh, fine. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> Okay, sorry, I got really excited there because I was like, ah, oh, I, I can't, I can't mention the one thing that, you know, connects my two fandoms. So no, there no, you go. Do it. <laughs> so great discussion that we just had, everyone. Thank you, Eric Dewey, for guesting on the episode. Thank you for week. having me. Sorry, I made it wrong. Can we so long? Can Can we just make him a regular for all the discovery talk? <laughs> I'm up for that. I don't know if you're up for that, Mr. I'm, Dewey. I'm happy. I'm happy to be. Absolutely. Awesome. So, Eric, or Mr. Dewey. Uh, <laughs> it gets a little confusing. We got, we got it gets Eric's confusing here. with two Eric's on the show. <laughs> if we were to look for you online, how would we find you? Uh, well, I'm most active on Twitter, at Eric J. Dewey. Okay. And Mr. Barry. Uh, yes. Thank you for being on the show as well. Oh, and, I'm I'm glad that we're we're back. Yeah, me too. It's been a while since we've we've had a discussion. Yes. So if we were to look for you on the internet, how would we go about that? Just look for Trucky B47. I'm pretty much uh, everywhere you need to connect at me with that. Uh, you can <laughs> check out my you can check out my other show on the Four Eyed Radio Network, uh, Ranger Command Power Hour, where we discuss all things Power Rangers. And yeah, so Trekkie B47 is where you can find me in most places. Awesome. And if, if you want to look for me, at Nova Charter on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else. So thanks for listening and tune in next week. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Live long and prosper! Peace and long life. My mind to your mind. I did love that bit on the after track. Whoa, whoa, that is too dark. You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four Eyed Radio Network. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod. Like us on facebook.com slash sfescapepod. And add us to your circle on Google Plus by going to google.sfescapepod.com. Dot com.